I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome back to Composite Two Star Recruits, a USC recruiting podcast where a couple of one-star hosts talk about five, four, and three-star prospects and everything in between. I am your one-star host, Chris Trevino, and as always... I am joined by my podcasting partner in crime, Gerard Martinez. Gerard, we recorded an episode last week on officially Douche Robinson Day. We had a pretty good idea of what was going to happen, that he was going to commit to USC. Didn't know for sure. Things happen in recruiting, but lo and behold, Douche Robinson Day was a success for Lincoln Riley, the coaching staff, and USC fans. Juice Robinson signed with USC. Now we're back again to run it back and talk about Deuce Deuce for this podcast. Oh, my gosh. He committed. Oh, my gosh. Chris. Oh, my gosh. It's so awesome. It's so huge. It's so big. That's what people wanted last week. But that's what they get this week because it happened. It actually happened. We don't deal with hypotheticals or faking a reaction. We are here to talk about USC signing Deuce Robinson, the number one tight end in the country. But is he actually a tight end? Will it be more of a wide receiver? We're going to talk about that. We actually have a really, really jam-packed show. I'm a little bit afraid of how jam-packed it is because we're going to talk about Deuce Robinson. We're going to talk about not about hypotheticals, about where he lines up with this offense. We're going to talk about baseball. We have our first guest of the composite two-star recruit. This is a historical episode we will have Shotgun Spratling on the show. And we're going to talk about Deuce Robinson and specifically the lens of Major League Baseball and his baseball future and what that means. So we're going to talk a long time about that with Shotgun. Then we're going to talk. We're going to preview another commitment coming up. That's four-star safety Aaron Flowers. And then Gerard, you and I were at the Under Armour camp. We have a lot of prospects to talk about and evaluate. We have a potential commitment day coming up. The holy hour is this weekend, the, the mega-hyped holy hour. There have been a couple of drops from that, so we're going to get into those. We have some questions. We'll talk about some spring misses, some some stuff going on there with the 2024 class. Jarrett, there's just a ton to get to for this week. I knew, looking at it with Deuce Robinson's Day last week and Under Armour and all that, I knew this was going to be a jam-packed episode. It's definitely going over three hours. I'm going to make that uh, commitment right now. We shall see, said the blind man. We shall see, said the blind man. Before we jump into this jam-packed episode, just a quick reminder and a thank you to the official sponsor of the Composite Two-Star Recruits. You know her, you love her. That is Meredith Schlosser, one of the top real estate agents in Los Angeles with over $600 million in sales and more than 200 five-star Zillow reviews. Meredith has represented Jeannie Buss, the president of the Lakers, and a one-star like myself. Yes, a one-star like me. I have used their services. They are amazing. They're great. Make that call. It's going to be the best decision you ever made when it comes to buying a house. Meredith is backed by a full-service team that allows her to service a wide range of clientele, 
for rentals, sales, and purchases. She has extensive experience with first-time home buyers and sellers. Most recently, Meredith was recognized by Wall Street Journal within the top 1.5% of agents in the nation. You can learn more about Meredith and her team at www.meredithschlosser.com. That is S-C-H-L-O-S-S-E-R. And you can check out her business Instagram at Meredith Real Estate. Thank you so much to Meredith Schlosser and her team for being the official sponsor of the Composite Two Star Recruits. Gerard, cold open. Pretty simple this week, just like it was last week. Douche Robinson commits to USC, signs with USC over Georgia, Oregon, Alabama, Texas, a whole slew of schools offer this man the number one tight end in the country, six foot six, 225 pounds, the number 19 overall prospect in the 24-7 sports composite, excuse me, the rankings, number 17 in the composite, the number one prospect in Arizona. He boosts USC to the number one class in the Pac-12 rankings ahead of Oregon in the high school class and overall class. This is the first time USC has held the number one class ranking in the conference since 2018, which is a really crazy sentence to say, knowing you know USC, USC should have the top recruiting class in the Pac-12 every year, but it was a five-year drought for them. They are back on top with Deuce Robinson now in the fold. Gerard, we talked a lot about what was going on with Deuce if he did commit, but now we don't have to talk about the hypothetical. We can talk about why he picked USC and what his impact is on the field for USC and get a little more into that being him, him being a tight end versus a wide receiver and Lincoln Riley's really interesting comments that he made on Saturday, what we'll get into. Yeah, I think those comments are probably the most newsworthy because that's a dynamic as to how he's going to play this year. And that's the biggest thing from all of this is that this is a 2023 recruit that is going to make an impact for USC this fall. So, you know, when we talk about the why and the recruiting process, I feel like there are plenty of Trojan fans are a little worn out with that aspect of his recruitment. And now they just want to know, okay, how can he help us become a better football team? And certainly we touched on that last week in terms of bringing in a dynamic of a big receiver and how USC doesn't have too many of those. Uh, You know, they're able to get uh, Jacoby Lane, who's a tall receiver, but not necessarily a big receiver. He's more in the mold of a Dwayne Jarrett, sort of a vertical 50-50 ball threat, whereas Robinson obviously brings that to the table. But what he also brings to the table is that he's 245, 250 pounds, and he's strong. And he's going to be a mismatch whether you put him in the slot, put him out wide, or you put him inside as an inline tight end. Now, speaking to what Lincoln Riley said, he talked a little bit about how Deuce Robinson wasn't going to be an every down inline traditional tight end, which I can totally understand that. And as a freshman, I think you do want to move him around. You do want to evaluate him to some extent within the offense. You've already evaluated him plenty as a high school football recruit, but that was a bit of an evaluation done in a vacuum. You've got to now bring it into how it translates to how you call plays, how you use your personnel, who you have playing around him and the college football game and the speed of the college football game and how Deuce Robinson is going to have to adjust to that. So all of these different things come into play. And you listen to Lincoln Riley talk a little bit about him and being able to utilize him outside. 
I think that's definitely a strength for him. There is positional versatility with Deuce Robinson. And I think nowadays with that type of position, it's a hybrid position. Uh, the tight end position in most of these offenses is not going to be a position where you have your hand on the ground every single down. Having said that, I still believe fully that Deuce Robinson is going to be a tight end. He is a ceiling tight end because of his frame, because of his strength, because of his athleticism, but his athleticism compared to his size. So it's not just, you know, he's a guy that you would compare to maybe a Drake London, who is a big receiver who many people coming out of high school thought might end up being a tight end. When I first saw Drake London play, I knew almost immediately, this is a big kid, but he's not necessarily a tight end, mainly because of his frame and his fluidity as an athlete. Drake London had a shooting guard frame, and he was a basketball player, so that stands to reason. But then you watch him play in the physicality that he had, that was sort of the shocking thing. That was really what made me pound the table for him, uh, maybe being a potential five-star. He had that ability to get downfield and absolutely destroy defensive backs in run blocking. And you're thinking, this is a guy that was a wide receiver slash five-star basketball player. I mean, you're thinking, okay, he's a 50-50 guy. He's going to go up high for the ball. He's going to know how to use his body. He's going to have great body control with the ball in the air. But the two aspects that impressed me about London was the fact that he caught the ball and he knew how to get upfield and make people miss and be physical as a runner with the ball in his hands, which is very unique for a big receiver. USC seen plenty of big wide receivers, actual big wide receivers, guys like David Osbury, guys like uh, Jordan Cameron, um, you know, Patrick Turner. Mike Williams, and really Mike Williams is the only other guy that catching the ball and then having this instinct and this awareness for getting upfield and going to score. And that's what Drake London had. Drake London was, I'm going to go score now. And it's like, who's going to tackle me? Who's going to take me on? It wasn't, I caught the ball. I know I'm going to get tackled. I'm not necessarily super quick, so I'm not going to make people miss. So I'm just going to kind of try to get some extra yards here. He was, I caught the ball, I got my shoulder square, I'm going to go score. And so that, that's a different type of player than Deuce Robinson. Deuce Robinson is a great athlete, a guy who's going to catch the ball really well, but not necessarily quite as fluid to where you would say he's going to be a big receiver. He's a guy that is going to stay around 235 pounds and just be a really big receiver. He's a guy that frame-wise, strength-wise, his body He's going to be able to play in the box. You wouldn't really want to play Drake London too much in the box, even though he had the mentality and the physicality to go in there and block people. I mean, he was a guy that was a bit kamikaze sometimes, just even as a college player, to get in there and try to block linebackers. But that was not going to be his ceiling. With Deuce Robinson, he can do that, and he can be an actual, uh, an actual impact player in the run game in terms of trying to get on the edge. You've got a guy who's 6'6", 250 and every bit of it, he's going to be able to seal people off. And so that's going to be nice to have that threat as a receiver, but also have a guy in there that is going to be able to run block and get downfield run blocking because of his size. And again, it's, it's really frame, fluidity, and just how you catch the ball with your ball skills. It's, it's everything in one particular package. So I think, yes, true, 
He has the athleticism to definitely move around on offense and, and move him in different spots. You can play him wide, you can play him in the slot, you can play him as an inline guy. But ultimately, with his size and his frame, he's going to be a guy that's going to be playing tight end in the NFL. And let's look at that quote that Lincoln Riley had over the weekend on Saturday. Because coming off Deuce Robinson Day, everyone wanted to ask about Mr. Deuce Robinson. And that was the majority of the questions that he faced on Saturday for his spring practice presser. And the first question was, you know, on where does he see Deuce Robinson lining up, tight end, wide receiver? The graphic that USC put out for Deuce Robinson signing actually listed him as a wide receiver. So, Gerard, I'm just going to read you this quote. A lot of it kind of reflects on something you, you – some of the things – the points you already made uh, just now. But, quote, some of what will – some of that will be getting him here, kind of finishing our evaluations of the players here this spring – Obviously, getting him and Jacoby Lane here and anybody else that becomes a part of that room. Kind of seeing what the overall skill looks like and then trying to find the place where we feel he can come in and give us the best advantages and give us the biggest impact. I certainly don't see him as a tight end. He's a guy you he's a guy you can, I think, conceivably do conceivably do a lot of things with, which has been our excitement in recruiting him. I've known Deuce for almost four years. It was a three and a half year recruitment. So you got to know him very well, got to see his body really evolve and change a lot from day one. He's really kind of leaned out from running. He's gotten faster and more agile as the years have gone on because he was always pretty big. He's a unique skill set. We are fired up. We are fired up to add to a good group right now. He's not going to be in every down on the ball tight end. I think we know that. No question. I would imagine he's a guy will have the opportunity to move around and do some unique things with because from a matchup standpoint, you can go out recruiting four or five years and not see that combination. It's a very unique combination of skill set that he has. And on top of that, he's a tremendous person, great family. He's the kid in the age of all these big announcements and all that. He drops a video. He's in the weight room with his dad and family working out while it drops. That's just him. He's not flashy. Great kid. His parents have done a good job with him. He's obviously got some cool things coming up. We are thrilled that we get to be the ones that get a chance to do this next step with him. End quote. What is the most interesting thing out of that? Well, I think, you know, he's doubling down a bit on him being a receiver first, which definitely doubling down sort of plays to his recruitment, because I think that's what Deuce Robinson wanted to hear. And, And through his recruitment, he wanted to go to school where he was a receiving threat first and foremost. And let's be honest, that's the truth with every tight end. No tight end wants to hear about, man, you're going to be a spectacular run blocker in our offense, right? Uh, and even as receivers go, you're not recruiting receivers uh, based around their run blocking necessarily. It's about catching the ball, scoring touchdowns, because that's what everybody sees and that's what everybody credits. But the truth of the matter is, you got a guy with that size, and the reason why he's such a mismatch is because of his size and that ability to play inside. And so the inside-out nature, I think, of what he gives you is really what it adds to the offense. It's not necessarily that he's just a big receiver that can play on the outside. It's that he's a big receiver that can also play on the inside. And he can put his hand in the ground, and he can play in 11 personnel, and he can be a guy that can you know get on a, a defensive end or get on an outside linebacker and sincerely block those guys, not just try to chip them, not just you know 
do some stuff where it's a little misdirection and you're getting a little bump and then, you know, your guy keeps moving. It's one of those things where it's like, listen, we need you to maintain blocks on the outside. We want to try to run on the outside against this team. We feel like we can get leverage against this team. We feel like we can run screens and RPO against this team, but we need edge leverage and we need to make sure that we've got somebody that can get a big body on a big body. But at the same time, what keeps the defense honest is the fact that he has that athleticism. He can get vertical. He can be an underneath threat. Now, he's still raw. And I think that's the aspect as a receiver, which he's going to have to work on the most. Blair Angulo, who has covered uh, Deuce Robinson longer than anybody and seen him more than anybody in the recruiting world, made a very good point about the underneath game and how important that could be for a big receiver that has that type of frame, how you can sort of you know, box people out and you can really sort of position yourself almost like a basketball player in the post. And, and Deuce Robinson also played basketball on top of being a baseball player and a football player. I mean, he is a triathlete. But the thing is, when you start to play underneath and underneath routes, in order to get separation, it's really about your route running. You really have to do some things and know some things and, and get practiced with that. And because Deuce Robinson has been playing baseball during the offseason or he's been playing basketball, he has not had a full cycle of football training under his belt. And so that's something that has put him behind to some extent. And, and he's going to be behind to some extent coming to the team this summer. It's going to be a lot about, okay, how quickly can he absorb these things? And from a technical standpoint, working with the inside receivers coach, he's going to be pro probably working a lot with Luke Heward and getting down the refinement of how to run tight little routes underneath, because we can talk all day about, you know, the vertical routes and what have you, and those will be there and those will be a threat. And he will be a guy that you can get that on the ball coming off of play action, getting down the hashes. I mean, that's an aspect that we haven't really seen USC use and USC really hasn't had a whole lot. Their offense with the tight end and the H back has been very lateral. It's been a very horizontal game. It was very interesting when uh, Rob Gukowski, God, I can't say that right. Gronk. Krukowski, Krukowski, Gronk. Basically, Gronk. Just say Gronk. <laughs> he had that comment uh, at the Arizona game, and I think I've cited this before, but it was it was it's very interesting on many many levels of what he's saying. Looking at the college game and how horizontal, how lateral the offense is compared to the pro game where you're getting downfield more. It's a bit more vertical. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think that's one aspect of USC's offense that I think is going to evolve to some extent. I think if USC is going to continue to have a great deal of success, they're going to have to contrast a little more with getting guys downfield off of play action. And it's not always necessarily going to be the receiver just beating a guy one-on-one -on, -one on a skinny post. There's going to be those situations where you have play action and you're able to get a tight little seam route off to the tight end. And that's going to be very big. And yeah, you're going to have a lot of motion, I think, with the H-backs. I think this type of offense that they're running, which you know it has those air raid routes, but certainly Lincoln Riley has been one of the first to, to understand and appreciate how big the run game is and how important it is. But from that, if you have a run game and the defense has to respect that run game, you always have that ability for play action. And your quarterback doesn't have to hold on the, onto the ball as long if he's got a good tight end that can get off the line of scrimmage quick, get his head around, and make a catch in the seam or make a catch in the post. 
At the same time, you also have to be able to work underneath. Because, again, it's all about keeping the defense honest. you got to do multiple things to keep the defense honest. You know, we've always talked about the Clay Helton era and them running rush uh, mesh read and not having a quarterback that can run the ball. It, it didn't keep the defense honest on the edge. So the running backs were constantly getting tackled from behind from those players off the edge. So you have to do multiple things. And Deuce Robinson allows them to do multiple things because he could be a legitimate run blocker against a, a, an actual five technique. Okay. A guy that's 6'5, 260, 265 pounds. You got a tight end that's 6'6, 250 pounds. Okay. Then you can go mano a mano there and mic block him and take that guy and, and be able to maintain that block. Okay. That's a big deal. That's really important. It's not, okay, we got a receiver coming over and trying to chip him. I mean, there was really a nice play last year where Taj Washington actually made a really good chip play on a, a defensive end. It was like, holy crap, man, you guys can Taj Washington to that poor kid. Yeah. He's like, you know, that's that's a, that's a career suicide almost there where you're trying to take on a 260-pound, 270-pound defensive end. But it was a great block, and he did it. And it, it schematically it was a brilliant way because, you know, defensively you're not thinking, oh, Taj Washington is going to be that guy to make the block that's really going to spring this play open. At the same time, you don't have to put the Taj Washington in that situation because you're getting guys like Deuce Robinson who can step up and, and just man up and take those type of plays away from the defense where they can't focus on just one thing. Okay. And can't just focus on, well, this is a run blocking tight end. Right. And, and USC's used those type of personnel groupings before where you had certain guys come in and it's like, Oh, John Walker, uh, 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 Brad Walker, excuse me. Uh, we know Brad Walker's in the game. We know it's a run because he was a really good run blocking wide receiver. And it was sort of like giving away uh, the, what USC was going to do tendency wise and didn't take a lot of scouting to see certain personnel groups meant certain things. And they did certain things when uh, they were lined up this way with that type of personnel. But when you got a guy like Duke Robinson, who can legitimately run block, he can get downfield vertically, whether he's in the slot or he's in line um, and if he's able to develop his underneath game, because again, this is what Blair was talking about. This might be the difference, the run blocking and being able to work underneath and get that separation and play a bit like a power forward, um, you know, on shorter routes on, you know, a third and five or third and six. And, and you're like, hey, you know what? They're going to come up. We've been running the ball well. They want to stop the run. Sometimes defenses are like, listen, man, this is, a, this is a, an ego check for us. We need to get up the line mm-hmm. and put eight guys. And we need to stop the run right now because they're gashing us. Okay, cool. We got Deuce Robinson. We don't need him to run 20 yards. We don't need a 30-yard play. All we need is you know, solid eight yards, and you get him open, and it's an easy little pitch and catch. And that kind of stuff, and it kills the defense. It kills the momentum of the defense. So I think that's some of the things that are going to allow the, def- uh, the offense for USC to be able to do more. And it's certainly, you know, getting bigger on the edges is also you know, a very, very big deal. And it's going to be interesting to see how – the evolution of the Y versus the F or H back um, sort of it's it, it parting ways a little bit now with, with the tight end room having two different positions. Because you look at Carson, Carson Tabarachi and Kate Eldridge and their body types, and then you look at Lake McCree and Jude Wolf and now uh, Deuce Robinson and their body types. And you're looking at some different kind of players there. You know, Carson Tabarachi is 6'2", 225, 230. And then you bring in a guy like Deuce Robinson, who's 6'6", you know, 240, 250, different kind of guys, you're going to do different things with them. So that is also going to continue to expand and evolve how the offense plays going forward. But we did talk about this several times. This is another instance where USC is getting bigger up front. 
you know, offensively, it's funny because we talk so much about USC's defense needs to get bigger up front. They need to get bigger. They need bigger guys. If we're looking at what has been successful in the college football playoff and those defenses, you got to get some 300 pounders out there, but it's the offense that when you look forward at the 2024 offensive line class and the 2023 offensive class, line class that they just signed, and you throw Deuce Robinson there, you, you throw that, you know, you're going to have Walker Lyons coming in, 6'4", 240. Um, you're going to have Kate Eldridge coming in along with Deuce Robinson this summer, 6'4", 235, former linebacker, or excuse me, running back. Um, so, you know, he's going to be playing H-back. You, you see where USC's offense is really getting bigger, 200-pound, running backs across the board. You know, I remember when Kennedy Palomalu came to USC and he was like, where are all our guys that are like, we need to recruit some 200 pound plus guys. Like we don't have the running backs to be able to move the pile. And sometimes you're just going to have to break a tackle. Sometimes somebody's going to miss a block on a third and two and your guy just has to break an arm tackle and he has to lean forward and you've got to have those guys. And uh, Justin Davis, was kind of like the first guy that they got during that era to kind of rekindle that ability to have some guys that had some physicality and, and they had some power uh, that they could run with. And so this group of running backs, you know, outside of Relic Brown, you know, all these guys are, you know, six, you know, you're talking about kind of smallish a 5'10 maybe, um, but still 205 pound Quinn Joyner. And you got a Mary Peterson there. He's like, you know, 6'1", almost going 6'2". 220 pounds. And the guys that they're recruiting in this class, um, they already have on the roster. You bring in Marshawn Lloyd, you know, all 210, 215. That's kind of a different offense you see in the making, maybe when they're going into the Big Ten here in a, in a year or two. In terms of getting bigger in that wide receiver tight end room, that was something that Lincoln Riley did address. That was kind of one of the final questions on the topic of Deuce Robinson on Saturday. It was like, did you look at it like, you know, we need to get bigger up front, you know, with wide receivers and tight ends? And he said, yeah, that's something we really wanted to attack. And he said, you know, with Jacoby Lane and Deuce Robinson and Walker Lyons, when he gets here, you know, we've brought we've added a lot of speed to the receiver room, to that skill position room. And to quote, we got some juice in that room. And, you know, you start mixing up those skill sets with big bodies with the, all the speed that they have acquired, you know, with Taj Washington, Mario Williams being quick, Zach, Zachariah Branch, we know how quick he is, and Relique Brown, we know how his, yeah, the speed and um, matchup issues that he can for, for slower guys and he, how he's playing more slot. We, we see that they are both bigger and now quicker than they were a year ago. And, you know, we've talked about, when we first talked about, you know, me going to see Jacoby Lane, you know, he's 190. He's not the, he's not the size of Deuce Robinson in terms of his weight, but we saw that he would be, he would get down there and make some, some blocks. He was, he was a willing blocker. And I'm sure that's going to be a a part of his game. That's going to grow as he adds more size, but yeah, he's a, a, a spring. uh, What's the word? uh, uh, What's the word I used? A uh, a pogo stick. A six four four pogo stick, but hey, he will also he's also shown that he is willing to throw some blocks out there. So USC definitely getting bigger up front, as you mentioned. Some so we're I think we're gonna see a lot more run blocking moving forward, a lot more effective run blocking moving forward. But Gerard, in terms of just the overall recruitment of Deuce Robinson, just how big was it one to 
actually land him and you know keep him away from Georgia and keep him away from I know Oregon wasn't a serious serious contender but just to win one on the west coast and then obviously the how it looks just to be the number one class in the Pac-12 as I mentioned at the top of this cold open yeah I think the latter is the biggest thing statement wise like hey it's a big time anytime you get a five-star recruit uh, certainly it's at a position that right now you look at it and you look at the tight end room, uh, even though it's kind of split into two, like we said, it's still really a need position for them right now going forward. You know, mm-hmm. they really don't have a guy that has the it factor, at least on paper. Lake McCree has been uh, good for them. You know, he hasn't been overly productive and that's not completely his fault. He hasn't been targeted a whole lot. And then he got hurt. Uh, in the in the in the middle of the year, Jude Wolf has obviously been hurt quite a bit, so he hasn't been able to contribute so much. Um, Carson Tabarachi is coming in, new position, never really played it before, so we don't know you know what to expect from him. Other than we know that he's a guy that you know, in high school was a really good running back, and so he brings a little bit of a wrinkle to that H back position. And Kate Eldridge, same thing, mostly played running back in high school, so that's an interesting position to see how that's utilized and how it changes here over the years now that you've got guys that are actually playing running back at that position instead of Lake McCree, who was really a big receiver in high school. I mean, Lake McCree did a lot of the things that Deuce Robinson did in high school. He was that type of player in terms of how he was utilized at Austin Westlake. So I think it's huge from the standpoint that it is a neat position and you're getting a super talented player. But statement-wise, yes, it's one of those things getting over the hump of beating Oregon out, you know, you can light your cigars, Trojan fans, um, being able to say, you know, we have turned it around on two fronts. And, and that's very big. Now, is it a big time defensive tackle? Is it USC getting better in the one area that they need to get better the most at, which is defense, defensive front seven? No. So we do have to put that in the context and not get over exuberant and say, oh my gosh, this is fixing all the faults of last year. But It is in many ways, you know, when you look at this class as a whole and you step back, you see, as we've harped on, USC getting bigger, getting more physical, but not at the expense of getting slower, right? You still have those guys, as you mentioned, Zach Branch, Makai Lemon. You still got some dynamic playmakers on offense in this class. So it's really just a matter of waiting to see if the defense can do that too, because that's the thing. Like, you want to get those skilled players that are those guys that within space, like a Raleigh Brown, that can make guys miss. But USC offensively, you know, they're backing it up by getting bigger and stronger as well, getting those guys up front on the offensive line, getting a guy like Deuce Robinson, which will help the offensive line when he is an inline tight end. So those are the type of things that, you know, I think you're looking at an offense that's really well-rounded. And we'll talk about this, but, you know, we got to talk a to a bunch of recruits over the past three weeks or so about practice, you know, because practice has started back up. Some of these guys have been able to take some unofficial visits down the practice. They've seen some scrimmaging. And because we get so little uh, exposure to what's happening in these competitive periods in practice at USC, it's really good to kind of ask some of the family members and some of the kids. And, you know, what did you get to see? You got to be there (laughs) the whole practice and you got to see who was standing out and, and, and what they were doing and, and why they stood out to you. What, what, what was the highlight and why was that the highlight? And it's very interesting to listen to the kids and the players and the names that they drop and what they see 
And USC definitely still got a lot of speed, very dynamic. And, you know, again, offensively, it's a very well-rounded class for them. It's a very complete class for USC. I mean, you get two solid running backs, right? Physical, but also have a little juice. They have a little bit of quickness. They can they can break some, some runs here. Not necessarily the home run hitter that Raleigh Brown was in the class before, but still two very solid running backs that can carry a load if you need them to. You get three tight ends in this class. Granted, Walker Lyons is not going to join the class till 2024, but you get, you know, 13 personnel possibly out of this, which, again, we kind of hinted at um, earlier in the summer, ended up becoming true. You know, the USC gets all three of those guys in the class. A full offensive line class of a very solid offensive line class from tackle to tackle, interior guys, a center, and Michael Benuelos, you know, complete class and a quarterback with those two dynamic receivers. So, you know, offensively, I mean, this is, you just want to see this mirrored defensively. This, if you could land this type of class on offense and defense, I mean, you're set. Again, we kind of talked about USC trying to cherry pick in certain regions because front seven wise, it's difficult. And I think it's going to be more difficult to be able to get those guys up front defensively, maybe going into the DMV, you know, maybe going into some of these places, Texas. And if you're able to get, you know, two or three guys like that on defense and you're able to combine it, with some of the skill players they're able to get out West. I mean, then you're talking about competing with Georgia and Alabama, Ohio state, et cetera. Gerard, there is a huge other component when it comes to Deuce Robinson, but we're going to leave that to shotgun Spratling to break that down. That is the major league baseball aspect and just baseball in general. But before I jump over to him, is there anything else you want to touch on with Mr. Deuce Robinson now a Trojan before we move on to that? No, I think um, it's going to be interesting to listen to Shotgun and certainly his perspective from a baseball standpoint, because yes, the MLB draft is still looming and there's still that aspect of Deuce Robinson's career and, you know, how much focus he puts on USC and if there's enough money there in the draft to lure him away from college altogether. I mean, there's still that possibility. So uh, I think Shotgun obviously is going to know a lot more about that. I don't watch baseball. I don't know much about the draft and uh, prospects. And I, I just know that throughout the process, it seemed that third round ish in terms of bonus money was the thing that most people felt like might be enough to lure him away from college. So we'll see what happens with that, but I'm sure shotgun's going to have a lot to say on that part. Yeah. We'll bring in the expert that is shotgun Spratling to help us out to, to unpack the baseball box of Deuce Robinson, Gerard, you can take a break, take a rest, and when we come back, we'll get right back to the, to the rest of the show. But right now, let's go to Shotgun Spraddling, and let's look at baseball and Douche Robinson. I am very honored and delighted and excited for this historical moment because we are bringing in the first ever guest on the Composite Two-Star Recruits. And it's an important guest because it is a fellow Helium boy my colleague, my editor, my good friend, Shotgun Spratling. Shotgun, I'm glad it was you. I'm glad you were the first guest of the Composite Two Star Recruits. How the heck are you? And welcome to my little show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm glad that I can be the answer to the trivia question in the future when this becomes the greatest podcast of all time. Yes. Um, and you guys do the 24 hour uh, you know, marathon when that happens and you have to have guests then you can be like, well, the first guest was shotgun. So I'm happy to be the first one here. 
And don't think that you're not going to be called in on the 24-hour stream. I need <laughs> I need you to eat some innings out of the bullpen. I need you to come in. I need you to give like three hours for us and help us out when that does happen. So you'll be getting a call from me uh, so to, the, to come onto the show, the stream. So there's going to be a basketball section, a baseball section is what you're saying? I, I got to fill and, and <laughs> I got to move everything around. I got to get through it somehow. And I got and if that includes duct tape and a lot of shotgun. That's what's going to take to get us through 24 hours, which is still, you know, kind of a joke bit, but it's slowly becoming more real. But yes, you're definitely getting a call shotgun. So be ready. That's all, all right. I'm saying. It's be ready. All right. If, if duct tape and a couple of gadgets can get MacGyver through a, a mission, I think that I could handle it too. There you go. And he made a baseball reference. And that's exactly why shotgun is here because I referenced it in last week's show. I said, you know, if Deuce Robinson commits to USC, he's a Trojan. We're possibly going to have Shotgun Spratling on to talk about the baseball side of the equation for Deuce Robinson. Lo and behold, we already know, US, USC fans already know, Deuce Robinson signed with USC. Now it becomes this thing about baseball. He has these two paths to go on. We're going to talk about that. But first, Shotgun, before we get into all that, I just got to say, if you don't know Shotgun, he, you know, I call him the world's greatest USC basketball beat writer. But he's also the world's greatest USC baseball beat writer and one of the most respected baseball writers in America. And you're asking, Chris, how can you say that? How do you have the credentials to say that? Well, I won my fantasy baseball league in 2019, and I was the shortstop for the Laurel Orioles when I was like six. And those are all the things I need to be able to make that statement about my friend Shotgun Spratley. (laughs) So he is here. Shotgun, before we get into Deuce Robinson as the baseball player, I just want you to take me through the MLB draft process because I know a lot of people maybe are listening to this. They don't really follow baseball. They don't follow baseball recruiting or, you know, the MLB draft. I know some are, but some aren't. So if you can kind of walk us through what the MLB draft process is like, when it is, what can we expect? Yeah, so the draft is in July. It's now 20 rounds. It used to be 40 rounds. Even before that, it was infinity rounds. You just drafted until you didn't want to draft anymore. Infinity cut, rounds? Oh yeah, they've cut it down. Uh, you know, that's how Mike Piazza, I think, was a 63rd round draft pick. Uh, you know, so there's and there's been some guys that have made it to the majors from these, you know, extraordinary number of rounds on. But, you know, that's no longer the case. You know, when COVID hit, the 2020 draft got shortened to five rounds. They, the collective bargaining agreement after that, they made it 20 rounds. So they shortened it. There was also a, you know, they cut back on the number of minor league teams. So there's less players needed necessarily for the minor leagues. So there's less players being drafted. So that makes those draft picks that much more, you know, imperative to hit on them. And also that you're not going to draft a bunch of guys that you're just not going to sign. You know, your your top 10 rounds nowadays. So the top 10 rounds are different from the rest of the draft. The top 10 rounds, you you are slotted. So the number one overall pick this year, they just announced yesterday, I believe it was, is going to be worth nine point something million dollars. So that means that the you know, that's the slot value. Now, the, the Pittsburgh Pirates, who won the draft lottery, the first draft lottery that they had for the MLB, they start with $9 million. Then they add the slot value for every single pick that they have in the first 10 rounds. They add that all up, and that is their draft pool. So that's how much money that the Pirates can spend for their entire draft class. 
one rounds one through twenty. The you know anything after round ten, you can you can uh, you can pay a player up to one hundred twenty five thousand dollars. That doesn't count towards your pool. But hey, if you try to take a flyer on somebody late, and that does happen still, you know, not as much as when there were forty rounds when you know somebody's uncle or you know uh, is in the organization, so they're doing them a favor. We're not going to sign this kid. We're going to sign him for you know uh, five hundred bucks or whatever it is, and we'll give him a chance, and then he's going to wash out. That doesn't really happen anymore. But you'll see some high leverage players, some high uh, potential players that are selected in the last couple of rounds of the draft, 18 through 20. And those are guys that are probably not going to sign. You know, they've already they've given a certain number and said, hey, this is what it will take to sign me. And so they don't get drafted much earlier in the draft. Um, so teams will wait and they'll kind of take a flyer on it. And then if they have money left over at the end, then they'll try to, you know, throw some money at one of these players um, an example, Rowdy Tellez was a Major League Baseball player. I think he's still with the Toronto Blue Jays. That was the last time I saw who he was with. Um, but you know, he was committed to USC. And there's, you know, you get drafted in July. There's a there's a later date. I can't remember where what it is this year. If it's in uh, September, I believe it may be. There's a deadline for when you can sign by for this draft class. And then after that, everyone becomes, you know, they they, you know, you're. You lose the right, the opportunity to sign that player. The player must then basically go to college. You can go to JUCO for one year. You can go to the uh, you know to a four-year school. You have to be there for three years. So that that's another thing that makes the uh, MLB draft that much different than the other drafts. So Rowdy Tejas is drafted in I believe something like the 34th round, and his number you know just to to give uh, some even numbers i don't remember the exact figures here but say his number was a million dollars that's what he wanted from teams he told them hey i'm going to you know i'm not going to sign i'm going to go to usc unless someone you know pays me a million dollars well teams said ah, i'm not real sure we want to pay that much to him we're going to let him go to usc well the team takes a, a flyer on him in the 34th round their first round pick the blue jays um, you know was phil bickford who actually was signed to go to cal state fullerton Phil Bickford ends up not signing. He's the 10th overall pick, ninth or 10th overall pick. Because of that extra money that the Blue Jays had, they then tried, okay, let's see if we can sign somebody else late to use this money that we have in our pool. Um, because you basically you don't get the money back once you, you know, you can spend up to a certain amount and you can't go over that amount without, you know, passing a certain threshold. So you it's basically you want to spend as much money, you want to you know, sign as many players as you can and give yourself that chance because this is much cheaper than signing players, you know, from the Dominican or from, you know, international players because they have a much bigger market. They don't have a draft. You know, they cost a lot more money. Free agents obviously cost a ton more. So you're taking this potential, these are really cheap assets in a you know, an organization. So Ratatouille has to go back to him and say, hey, we'll give you this much money. And I don't remember what, again, remember what the numbers were, but say it was $750,000. And he was like, well, this is really good money for the 34th round. And the USC coaches were like, of course it's really good money because you told them all you wanted a million dollars. And you you need to stick to your number. And USC is obviously trying to get him to come to campus. And he ends up signing with for whatever the number was with the Blue Jays um, for less than his initial number. But because of that, Cal State Fullerton got a really good pitcher in Phil Bickford, who went obviously went to the bigs. Uh, last I saw, it was with the Dodgers. Um, you know, and as a reliever, they got him. And the, you know, this is while Cal State Fullerton was doing really well. And so the rich got richer there. And USC has been struggling to get a power left-handed bat that plays really well at Dado Field. 
misses out on this type player because of the way the, the draft pools work and the money got uh, moved around. So that can happen. Those type of things can happen. There can be these late flyers. But basically, if you are a player, you know, now like I said, a team has a certain amount of money they can spend. So say the Pirates, their first pick is worth $9 million. I don't know what the exact total of their pool is. I think it's like 15 or $16 million. Uh, maybe not even that much. But So they can give that first player, they can give him the entire pool. They can give it, you know, they could. If it was the once in a generation, it's Steven Strasburg, you know, uh, Bryce Harper. Those type players were before the pool system, so they got a lot more money. But, hey, maybe Scott Boris, if he has that type of player, demands him. If if, if Shohei Otane was in the draft, you know, maybe he can demand much more than the pool. But what happens more often is that the number one pick, so instead of if the number is nine million, the slot is, signs for seven and a half million. There's a mm-hmm. deal already arranged before the draft. And before we select a player, we're going to arrange this deal with them if you're an MLB team and you know how much you're spending on the player so that you can save some money to to give to someone else. So now you get to the second or third round and you know the it's a million dollars. Well, there's this kid that wanted two million dollars, but he slipped because no one had the money. Now you've saved that money earlier, and now you can give him $2 million in the third or fourth round when somebody else couldn't. Uh, so that's the thing that kind of goes with this draft pool. So, you know, with Deuce Robinson in particular, it's we talk about it, and I, you know, I've tried to emphasize this with you guys. It's not whether he gets drafted in the first round, second round, third round, where he gets drafted. It's if he signs for certain round money. So we've talked about it probably being third round money is what he would need to sign with the MLB organization. Now, let me take it back just a second and look at it from the prospects side of things. So right now, Deuce Robinson, you know, throughout this offseason, throughout the spring, um, it's interesting that he's not playing high school ball. That's just kind of an interesting thing. He's playing club ball. He's doing some showcases and stuff. But you're going to have scouts coming in. You're going to have GMs coming in, cross-checkers, which are the uh, the, uh, the higher-end scouts for a program. You have regional scouts. You have cross-checkers. You have all these uh, different you know portions of the organization to come in and talk with a high-end prospect. All right, you want to sit down with the family? Let's get to know him. You know, it's the whole thing. It's basically recruiting. You, know, you go in. All right, we need to talk to the high school coaches. We need to talk to his teachers. We want to make sure what type of person this is that we're going to potentially spend you know, $5 million on or $10 million or whatever it is that you're a million dollars you're spending on this player. We don't want to waste money. We want to go in and make sure that we're getting someone that's going to be a productive member of our you know organization going forward. So they're going to go in, they're going to sit down with the family, talk with them doing that, but they're also going to be recruiting him saying, Hey, you know, we do really well at developing this type of player. We think you'd be a great fit for us. So then, you know, when the negotiations start, Okay, maybe Deuce Robinson says, you know, it's going to cost $2 million for this team and only a million and a half for this team because it's $2 million for the Baltimore Orioles because they've not been very good in the past. But maybe maybe it's a million and a half for Arizona because that's the local team. Uh, You know, so something some things like that do happen. The number can be shifted and be different Mm -hmm. based on the organization. So there's that element, too. There's a lot of different moving pieces in this. But basically the the prospect is going to sit down with all these teams, have these discussions, going to be recruited by them. But the family will eventually sit down heading into the draft and say, you know, all right, what do we think is feasible? What do we think we need to do? And Deuce Robinson is unique because he has football to fall back on as well. But say you're a regular recruit and you go, okay, I'm committed to USC. What's the cost going to be to go to USC? Um, You know, if I sign, 
you know, what do we get? What is the number we're going to tell teams? We will take this amount of money. Is this how much money it's going to take to buy me out of my commitment to go into USC? And, you know, if you're you're committed to a school like Stanford or you're committed to a school like Vanderbilt, you know, with these high end universities. OK, well, it's going to take a little bit more money to to buy me out of my commitment because of the education I'm potentially going to get. So now when a team comes in and say, all right, the number is a million dollars. All right. The player is going to get a million dollars, but they're also going to get basically the uh, their tuition paid for for their four years of college so that they basically are buying them out of, of their tuition as well. So they can then go back to college at a later date if they, they have a certain amount of window of time where they can then go back to college and it will be paid for by the organization. So all that stuff is encompassed in the signing bonus itself and that initial contract. But then once the player goes to the minor leagues, they're not getting much money at all. Now, this is being bumped up. This is being collectively bargained recently. Uh, you know, minor league players have been shit on for a long time and they haven't been able to get much money at all. It, you Basically, you get your signing bonus when you when you get drafted and then you're just kind of trying to make ends meet until you get to the bigs and then you can get a contract and you actually make money off of it. And you make a ton of money because baseball pays you know, probably better than any other sport, just uh, it, overall uh, your average player out there. So, you know, now, minor leagues, you can make, I think it's, I think it's around twenty-five dollars to $30,000 is what they're going to pay players at the lower ends, and it gets a little bit gradually higher as you get up. Um, but there's been a ton of players throughout history that have quit baseball just because they couldn't make it work financially. So you have to take a second job. You're work, you may be working a job before you go to the yard um, on, you know, on, on every night to go play your minor league game. There were players that were bunking up four, five, six, seven guys in a, you know, an apartment because they're trying to save money. So all those things happen. So life in the minor leagues is not glamorous. Mm-hmm. It's getting a little bit better. I want to say that. So it, you know, it's not as tough of, of a decision because now there is a little bit more of a living wage available to the players. Um, but it's all about that early signing bonus. So it's not like okay, well. You know, he's going to get the, a player's going to get a million dollars on the signing bonus, but they don't get a hundred thousand dollars each year. No, that's not the case. That million dollars has to stretch you however long it takes you to get to the bigs, basically. Um, and, and, you know, that's can be can be a two year process. If you're an elite college player, that's usually a long, uh, the the earliest it takes. Sometimes there, there are a few exceptions that make it in the same year they are drafted. That's pretty rare. It's, it's almost it's unheard of for anyone to go straight from being drafted to the bigs that you know that happened a couple times in like the 70s but that is you know and it, it happened sprinkled in every once in a while every once every decade or something that just doesn't happen anymore a guy like Bryce Harper you know uh, Stephen Strasburg Stephen Strasburg was as polished as it could be still took him a couple of years before he got to the bigs um, as the number one overall pick. So if Deuce Robinson signs with that program, it's going to take him a few years before he gets to the major leagues, potentially, if he ever makes it, you know, at all. Because, you know, the life of a minor leaguer is not glamorous and you have to produce or you get cut because they're constantly bringing in new players, international players, all this. So he is a talented player. I will say that about him. He has got a ton of potential. I know the, the comp is Aaron Judge. I think that's a little unfair just because of how well Judge did last year. But it would be a, a a much more fulfilling comp if you were looking at it maybe the year before, before everyone realized how good Judge could be with the 63 home runs and everything. Another player that he reminds me of is, is Giancarlo Stanton, Mike Stanton, Harvard-Westlake, 
What's the, you know, USC had a USC scholarship offer for football, you know, another big bodied outfielder that, that can add a ton of muscle to his frame, but is athletic, super athletic. So that's where he stands out. That's the uniqueness there. Long levers. Now long levers means a lot of power. Long levers often mean in baseball, a hole in the swing. You know, you can get beat on the inside fastball or, you know, there's certain pitches that you struggle to, to get to just because of trying to get your arms through the zone, that type of thing. I think Deuce Robinson does a really good job of getting his hands through the zone, keeping his bat back and being able to drive the ball to all fields. So, you know, from the little bit I've seen of him, and again, I got to see him against some elite pitching at the area code games, which is kind of the, the opening of high school baseball. Um, and he was really good in, in that setting. And that's with him kind of bouncing in and out of baseball. So, you know, I talked to several scouts at that event. Now, this is last August. Um, you know, several scouts, a couple of GMs, you know, that were in attendance, things like that. Just kind of give, give me your opinion. And I'll, almost the, all of them were intriguing, but we'll see. You know, that's why when I wrote about him in the in August, it was, okay, he's still got to develop. They still want to see what he can do over the spring. It's got to be something consistent. It can't just be a four- or five-day showcase. Ooh, he popped. It's got to be something where it's consistency that you can see him, you know, barreling up pitches against elite pitching and, you know, doing things like that. So that's why there's still a big question mark to me. Um, and the fact that he's not playing high school, you know, that's an interesting development there. But I also thought it was interesting that, you know, he basically has decided whether he gets drafted or not, he still wants to play college football. So uh, the the thought process there now is, you know, you, the Major League Baseball has been burned by this with Kyler Murray. And in particular, there's the Lincoln Riley product. But, you know, the A selected him in the top 10, I think ninth overall. And, you know, they gave him a big signing bonus to try to basically buy him out of, uh, of football. Uh, to say, hey, look, you got this bonus. You're going to come, you know, play with us. We're going to let you play the final season, though, because he was going to be the starting quarterback going to Oklahoma. He wins the Heisman Trophy, becomes the number one overall pick. Baseball gets put in the, in the, you know, in the in the rearview mirror, basically for him. Um, so that's something. Well, I think that is going to be in the back of the minds of a lot of baseball front offices. All right, do we want to draft this guy if he's not fully invested in baseball? So that's why I'm, uh, it, the, the, I thought it was very curious when Lincoln Riley said that and Deuce has said it in a couple of interviews since that that's his plan basically is that, you know, he, he, whether he plays baseball at USC or not, he does plan to play football. And the baseball portion would just be dependent on, you know, whether he's drafted. But I think if I'm an MLB program, I'm going to try, if I think highly enough of him to give him a big number, I'm going to be trying to tell him, all right, we give you this much money, you're done with football. Like, or maybe, hey, we'll let you have one season, but you got to be here. You know, we need you fully invested. So I think that's a very interesting development, which might end up helping, you know, USC baseball get him on campus as well. Right. And this is kind of the next part of the discussion I wanted to have with you is kind of these two paths that Lincoln Riley talked about, about Deuce Robinson during his uh, Saturday press conference when asked about the Robinson and his baseball future and how it pertains to playing football at USC. And I'm just going to read you the quote right here. I'm only going to read half of it. Uh, Deuce has big goals in both sports. I think there was some comfort factor there because it matched some of the other guys that we've been able to coach. So we've had very real conversations about that. I think the expectation is, and I don't certainly pretend to be a baseball expert, but I think there's a good chance that Deuce gets drafted and potentially a good chance that he gets drafted high. And if that's what happens, 
I think his intention is to sign a professional contract and then play college football, which he can do now. If that does not happen, I think all options are on the table in terms of potentially playing both at SC. We'll see how it evolves. I know this. There are two kind of knowns. He's going to play football at USC. Two, baseball is going to be a part of his future, which is obviously really exciting. Stop quote. Okay, the two knowns here, at least the first one, he is going to play football at USC. Shotgun, is Lincoln Riley in a position to say that Deuce Robinson is going to play football next year, depending, I mean, whatever happens in the draft. Like, someone could take Deuce in the first round, yes. And they could give him, and they can give him $4 million. I don't know, whatever. So, rock it through me, Shotgun. I I need help here. (laughs) Are we to assume that Deuce Robinson will be playing football next year, no matter what happens in the draft? It sounds like Lincoln Riley is confident that that's the plan. Um, Again, like I said, if I'm an MLB program, if I, for some reason, I fall in love with Deuce Robinson and $4 million ends up being the thing, it's a number one first round pick, which I don't think will be the case for him. Hmm. But if that ends up being the case, if I'm giving you $4 million, you're not playing football. Like I'm, I'm giving you $4 million to come be a member of this organization. We think you have a ton of potential, but you're raw still. We need to get as many bats as we can. We need to be focused on baseball the entire time. We can't be taking time out to focus on football and do that at the same time. So, um, you know, I, I think it's a challenge. Now, there's been other guys that have went the similar path where they're a football player, but they get drafted by baseball and they go play baseball. I don't know if you've heard of a guy named Russell Wilson. Uh, you know, he was drafted, you know, at, while he was at North Carolina State. He played in the minor leagues for two seasons while he was in college. Um, and then, you know, obviously he gets drafted after his terrific season at Wisconsin and baseball, his baseball career was done. Obviously, only he was a 229 hitter in two seasons or three, over 315 at bats. So, you know, that tells you another guy. I don't know if you remember the name Dennis Dixon, the quarterback from Oregon. I remember seeing him. I actually saw him uh, while, while doing an internship in the minors. I saw him play. He was not very good, but teams <laughs> saw the athleticism. And he played in high school, if I remember correctly. So, you know, he basically he hadn't played at Oregon because Oregon didn't have a baseball program at that time. So, you know, they were taking a flyer that, all right, let's see if, you know, something kind of connects here and something clicks. But he batted 176 in the lowest level of the minors, basically. So, you know, he didn't – that was it, and he went back. Um, and I, I think that was the season before his near Heisman run uh, with, the, with the Ducks uh, before he got injured late in that season. But, you know, there's just a couple of examples. Now, those are quarterbacks. You know, there's, it's a little bit different with position players. Um, both those guys were, were position players in baseball, not pitchers. So that can be a little bit different. Jameis Winston, you remember that name? He was a pitcher at Florida State during his time. He was a closer. It makes it a lot, a lot different when, hey, you can go get your work on the mound and you can do a bullpen by yourself separately. It's much more difficult when you're a hitter, I think, to be a two-sport guy in that regard. But we've also seen the myriad, you know the names at USC, from Anthony Munoz to Jack Del Rio, uh, John Jackson, the the second. You know, all those guys were dual-sport guys, Lynn Swan. So, you know, there's a bunch of, uh, of baseball players, or excuse me, Ronnie Lott. It was either Ronnie Lott or Lynn Swan, or maybe it was both of them. But, you know, a ton of uh, big Big-name guys at USC have been two sports stars, but it's a lot different nowadays in that regard. But from the sound of that quote, it sounds like Lincoln Riley believes he's coming to play football for us. And there's no doubt about it in his mind um, because he he was not questioning 
all right, we'll see what happens with the draft. Mm-hmm. Now, I talked to Andy Stankiewicz this week, USC's head baseball coach. His his tone was, we'll see what happens with the draft. I think the, the question mark is whether he plays baseball at USC, not whether he plays football at USC. So, you know, for, for the fans of the, you know, the football fans that are listening to the pod, I think you can breathe that sigh of relief because it seems like, that he will be there. That's what the coaching staff is kind of banking on. And that's important to note because, you know, Andy Stankiewicz and the baseball program, all right, they're going to go recruit somebody else because you can't trust he's going to be there. You can't just hope and wish and then have an open spot and you're not using it. You mm-hmm. you, you recruit somebody else and, you know, if, if you get an extra piece, well, that's great. That's awesome. Lincoln Riley, especially with how thin that tight end room is right now, if he's confident that he's coming to play, that changes the trajectory of that position group and what they try to do this offseason as far as the transfer portal and whatnot, or potentially moving someone else o- over to the tight end position. Because, you know, two, t- two guys right now, one of them is coming off a serious back injury uh, in, in Carson Tabarucci, um, you know, or Tabarachi. You guys are already got me uh, saying it the way you guys Tabarachi. Um, so, you know, the fact that he's coming off that injury, you know, Lake McCree has been banged up at different times in his career. Jude Wolf obviously has been, you know, hurt the entire time. Now they will get Kate Eldridge in the fall. But with the injury history at that position, if you think Drew Robinson's coming in, then hey, you don't have to go out and get somebody. But if you only have a couple of guys that have been banged up throughout their career and two freshmen, um, which Tabarucci is as well, then – you're going to go out and find a veteran tight end that can at least be your backup or something to the transfer portal, give you an extra body type of thing. Um, So I think that changes the way that USC goes about it. So if for some reason suddenly you see USC involved with some tight ends that aren't like some marquee playmaker in the transfer portal, then that would tell you, oh, maybe something's changed with Deuce Robinson. But it sounds like from from Lincoln Riley in that statement that they anticipate that that Deuce Robinson will be coming to USC to play football this fall. And – just for some clarifying points on my side, because I'm a baseball dum-dum. If he signs, let's say, what, well, what round do you project? What's the round range you think he'll go? Just like off your... I, I, it's hard to say, um, just because I haven't seen him this spring, um, you know, hitting and whatnot. And, you know, I'm kind of out of the loop as far as the, the draft guys from the high school ranks. Because, you know, I cover college, so I'm going to a different game all the time. Um, and... Outside of that top three rounds, you know, you don't get a, a ton of feedback. But you know, seeing him last fall, I thought he had the potential to get up into the, you know, to the third or fourth round, uh, if not even a little bit higher. I mean, he's just he's got so many tools um, there. He doesn't have the strongest arm. He's got a good arm in the outfield. He's, it's the athleticism. It's elite athleticism from that size frame, and that's something that that you know all scouts can salivate over whether it's a football scout or a baseball scout even a basketball scout they're going to salivate over that athleticism how well he moves at his size and the fact that if you think look what he's doing right now what if we had him full-time focused on baseball is he going to take a big jump going forward so i could see a you know a, a scouting department falling in love with him and wanting to take that chance on him and especially if you have saved a little bit of money a little bit earlier. Now, like I said, third to fourth round money, I don't know the range, where he will end up being drafted, but I think third to fourth round money is where you're looking at where then it becomes, okay, do you, you know, what's the decision become with football or are you going to focus fully on, on baseball? 
Um, but I think he has that potential to be up that high just because it, it's not that he's an elite athlete and he's big and strong. Those are all great. He runs per, he runs well for his size, but he can hit you know elite off speed pitches from high school pl- players right now. He can you know he's not getting jammed on inside fastballs. He has a great approach at the plate. I was really impressed with that portion of it. So that's why I think that you know and, and based on what he does this spring and how much you know the right eyeballs get on him, I think he could move up because it is again it's the lead athleticism adding to the fact that he is a patient hitter and does a lot of things you really like in the box. So, you know, I really like him as a pro- as a baseball prospect as well as a football prospect. Okay, well, let's let's play a little bit conservative here. Let's just say he's a fourth-round pick, whatever the, that fourth-round money is. Based on what Lincoln said and we've talked about, it sounds like there is a plan in place where, you know, he's in a range where it's not going to be FU baseball money, and he's like, okay, I'm done with football, and they go, he goes full on on baseball. So he gets drafted the fourth round. They have a plan in place, it sounds like, where he'll sign with, let's say he signs with the Diamondbacks, whatever. He signs with the Diamondbacks, and they give him, you know, good money, not, you know, money to to give up football. He enrolls in the summer, plays football for USC in the fall. Would the expectation be then he goes, plays minor league baseball with the Diamondbacks on his time away from football? Yes, exactly. So that's what Russell Wilson, Dennis Dixon, those guys have all done is that, hey, you finish up your your football season and then, you know, as soon as you're done, basically as soon as you're done with classes, you go um, and, or if you can do them remotely, as soon as you're done with your, your commitments to the, the football program, you would go over to baseball and depending on, you know, how much money they've given you might depend on, how important certain off-season commitments to football are versus baseball. Uh, but, yeah, basically, you know, if, if he was to get drafted in July, then he's probably going to go and go through a month of practice and whatnot in baseball, um, depending on what day the date the draft is. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but you know, he's going to go and try to get – just kind of get ingratiated, you know, and get, uh, you know, used to what's going on in the minor league, how things work, you know, and then if that's two weeks, if that's a month, whatever it is, then, you know, at the, you know, at the facilities that they have, uh, the spring training facilities, what are they going to do to get them in, kind of get them, all right, this is how we do things, this is what we want you to do, they'll give them the workout plan, all that type of stuff going forward, and then, you know, they send him back off to USC, he goes and plays football through December, January, and then he finishes his schooling for for that time. And then as soon as they can get him back out to the you know to the facility in Arizona, um, the spring training facility, then they would get out there for that. So I'm um, just looking it up right now. Arizona, since Arizona, you know they're the 10th, 11th, 12th pick, somewhere in there, but a little bit higher than midway in the in the in the draft um, in the draft order. order. There we go. Uh, but their if their fourth round pick is worth the, the number one twelve overall is worth five hundred ninety seven thousand five hundred dollars. That's what the slot value is for that pick. The pick values for the fourth round range from four ninety seven all the way up to six sixty. So is five hundred thousand dollars basically enough money for him to decide that he wants to give up football? Is six hundred thousand? Is seven hundred thousand? That becomes the question. All right, if his slot value there for the D backs is basically six hundred thousand, they say, 
we'll give you $1.5 million if you don't play football. Then that becomes the decision. That's why I think that there's still the, the question mark there. Now, if he gets 500000 is that enough to buy him out of his baseball commitment? And they only give him the slot value. Then maybe that's it. Maybe he says, okay, well, I, I want to go ahead and start my professional baseball career, but I'm still going to play football at the same time. I want to take that track and see how it goes as well. And that's going to be tough for a, a baseball organization is because that's a signing bonus. So he gets that regardless. It's not like, all right, well, you get this much money as long as you're here, you know, three years from now. It's a signing bonus. They have to pay it up front. And, you know, there's no rules, regulations they can put uh, stipulations. As far as I know, they can put on it to say you've got to be still playing baseball in four years to be able to get this entire check. You know, it's it's up front and it's gone. Um, so, you know, is $500,000 enough to buy him out of baseball? Possibly, but to buy him out of football, that would be a different question. So then the, that that becomes the question for the major league team is, do we want to use our, our, our draft capital, whether it be the, the pool money that they do have or the draft pick itself, fourth round picks are, you know, still a high, highly uh, coveted pick there. And you can't trade picks or anything. So it's not like you have an extra set of picks that you can, you know, you can trade off someone and get extra picks to make up for it. If you don't sign a guy in the top 10 rounds, you, you don't get anything in, in return, basically. Uh, you know, there you do get a pick in the next year's draft, um, but you lose that pool money. So however much money was there for the pool just gets subtracted from your overall. So you just can't spend as much money as well. So there's not – that's why there are very, very few players that are drafting the top 10 rounds nowadays that do not sign. And that's how I said earlier, you know, if if we're going into the fifth round, we just made our pick in the fourth round. We're on the phone and we're talking to whatever players that we like for the fifth round that we think are going to be there and saying, hey – would you be willing to sign for this? Would you be willing to sign for this? You're talking to three or four guys potentially, but you're letting them know we're really interested in you. We, we're going to potentially pick you, but we need to know the number that you're going to sign for beforehand because we're not going to draft you and, and have the, the hope and wish that you you do that. Now, there there are a handful of players every year. It's it. Out of the, you know, there's uh, um, 314 picks this year in the top 10 rounds. There will probably be five players at most that do not sign in the top 10 rounds. So basically, if you are drafted in the top 10 rounds, you are going to sign. And that will be Deuce Robinson included. So, you know, if you're watching, if you end up watching the draft when it when it happens in July, then you're basically going to be looking and seeing, okay, Deuce got drafted. Where did he get drafted? What's the slot value right there? Does it look like the team has money to move around to potentially give him more money? Those are the things you'll be looking at. Um, from a USC fan perspective, if you're a USC baseball fan and his name is not selecting the first 10 rounds, you can breathe a sigh of relief until the next day because the 11th round is, is often a time where players have made a deal the night before as well. So those are the, those are the things to kind of look for when it comes time for that July draft. And before we jump into the USC baseball side of things, that other path that could possibly happen for Deuce in playing both sports at USC – you said something interesting that I just wanted to like jump into and maybe you can speak more to it, but the idea of NIL and what has, what's that done to baseball. And I, I guess in terms of deuce, like, could they be like, Hey, 500,000 is your slot, but we'll give you 1.5 million now to give up football. But couldn't USC come back and be like, okay, we can get you an NIL deal 
worth whatever X amount to keep you in football and and stay with it? And has NIL become a thing for top prospects like baseball teams giving players NIL money to for to not go and leave for the draft and stay with their commitment? If you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, NIL is, is completely opened that up. I think we're you're going to see that in the WNBA as well. I mean, you, you're looking at Caitlin Clark, Angel Reese, that whole blow up about that. Well, they both have to come back because of their ages. You know, you're not allowed to to go into the WNBA draft till you're 22. But why would you go into the WNBA draft when you're going to make less money than if you have a good NIL deal? And these two obviously are blown up nationally. You're going to get some NIL from it. So, mm-hmm. you know, those type of things are going to happen. You look at some of the, you know, the programs across the country that have put together really good transfer classes. And a lot of it's built on NIL, like LSU. I mean, they're going to have Paul Skeens. They're going to have Dylan Cruz going to be the number one overall pick, um, their, their outfielder. But then they have Paul Skeens who's throwing 100 to 102, their Friday starter, who, who was a transfer from Air Force. You know, he, he's going to, you know, be a high commodity pick, but they've shown that they will pay money with their NIL stuff. So if you're not going to be that top 10, top 20 pick, maybe you start thinking, I'll just go back. And especially if you don't have as great of a year as you anticipate, then the NIL definitely will come into it. So I think I think that's a very real possibility if USC, especially on the football side, can say, hey, we can get you this NIL deal. Make sure you come to play football. It's going to at least match or you know exceed or whatever it may be. Um, and th- those could be big numbers. And again, I, I think that it, it's, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out for some players going forward. It's not something that's really been an issue yet. But I think you'll start to see it a little bit more, a little bit more, because it's just now trickling down, at least to the baseball aspect, or a baseball side of it, the NIL and that potential kind of changing the dynamics of the draft and changing the dynamics of the transfer portal. We just kind of saw that this past year for the first time um, with some of the NIL, you know, players wanting to go play in the SEC and you know, the fact that the SEC schools have NIL deals potential. Um, whereas you see that more with football. And I think you're going to start seeing it as well in the NFL draft potential, not not necessarily the draft itself, but whether or not a player comes out or decides to you know be an early entrant or not. I think some of those decisions can be based on NIL. You're seeing that in basketball. That's already happened. I think football is next. But baseball is the unique one because you can be drafted without entering your name. You don't have to enter your name and say, okay, well, I'm done. I've hired an agent. I'm not coming back. You can enter your name, you can be drafted. You can not pay attention at all, and the team can still draft you. And you just be like, what, what, someone just drafted me? I mean, that's not going to happen because they're going to do all their due diligence and whatnot. But that is something that is feasible that could happen. So, you know, I, I think it's a very interesting point that you bring up there. I think, yes, USC and NIL could uh, impact this decision for him, especially if a MLB team does come in and say, hey, you know, what will it take for us to buy you out? He could say, well, USC's already promised me this much in NIL, uh, uh, NIL package um, that they think they can get for me when I get to campus. So the, the, it's going to be something that will definitely, I, I think, play in for him much more than your regular average uh, you know, ML or um, high school baseball player that's making this decision. Yeah, maybe that's another factor for why Lincoln is so confident with him playing football. He knows part of the plan is a really nice NIL package for Deuce you know, assuming he can get him to stay and play football and and, and and not and can counter any team that maybe wants to throw a little bit extra money Deuce's way. Now, let's go with the second path and say Deuce is not drafted in the first 10 rounds or 
they don't have the money. The money's not there for Deuce within the whatever round he's drafted, whatever happens. And he does not sign with a major league organization. You know, he's not going to play minor league baseball. He is free then to play with USC baseball. Shotgun, what would Deuce Robinson joining the USC baseball team, or how long would he have to wait until we could actually play? What are the rules there for him? And what would the impact potentially be? I know this is like the least likely scenario of him not getting draft or not signing and then playing with USC baseball, but what is the, the potential impact there? And then what would be the like rules about it with you know him being a scholarship athlete for USC football? Yeah, so this is a different situation than Austin O'Vern, who is a walk-on football player that's on a baseball scholarship. So the NCAA has basically a scholarship totem pole. So, you know, football is at the very top, and then men's and women's basketball, and they kind of pretty much everything else is below that. So it's basically so that a school can't say, these eight water polo and six tennis players are, they're just, they just happen to be football players too. When they're, and they're just putting football players on extra scholarships to try to get past the number of 85, um, you know, the limit that they have there. So they essentially have, they have 99 players on scholarship, but eight of them are technically water polo and six yeah. of them are, or whatever. Like, so teams can't do that. Football is the, the highest highest uh, on the totem pole, uh, totem pole, the highest in the hierarchy. Um, if you play football, if you are a scholarship athlete and you participate in football in your first two years on campus, then you have to be on football scholarship. So that's the deal with Austin O'Byrne. This came up initially with Randall Cunningham uh, the second, uh, Randall Cunningham Jr. I can't remember if he's junior or second. Um, the elite track athlete from Bishop Gorman. Well, he played, you know, wide receiver at at Bishop Gorman as well. And so a lot of people want to know, well, could he come over and play at USC? Um, well, he could if he wanted, but he would have to wait two years before he could actually get on the field. So, you know, it ends up thinning out the the herd a little bit there because you're not going to have a ton of players that want to be a walk-on for two years before they can even get their chance um, in, in a second sport. Uh, and that's kind of the case with Austin O'Vern. And now the question is, he's blown up his freshman year as an outfielder for the baseball team. All right, does it make sense for him to come back and try to be a walk-on wide receiver, seeing the wide receivers USC continues to bring in, for one, but also knowing that, He's not going to be able to get on the field, even on special teams or anything else next season, because the football team would then have to take over his scholarship and count it towards the 85-man limit, and they're not going to do that. Um, At least I do not believe they would want to do that. So with Deuce Robinson, that situation is completely opposite, though, because he's going to be on football scholarship. You can play any other sport you want, and there's no restrictions. Mm -hmm. So Drake London was a football basketball player. If he had been on – Football scholar. I mean, he, if he had been on basketball scholarship, he wouldn't have been able to put those numbers up. He wouldn't have been a part of that, you know, four by one hundred um, group of wide receivers that each had hundred yards receiving against UCLA because he did that as a freshman. He wouldn't have been able to show out his sophomore year and then, you know, be able to, to, you know, become the the player he was, the number eight overall pick. He would have had to wait until his junior year or his third year on campus before he would have been allowed to participate in a game. Uh, because he'd been on basketball scholarship. So because he was on football scholarship, he was then able to go and play basketball whenever he wanted um, type of thing. And, you know, there was no restrictions. He played as a freshman in a couple of games. But that becomes the issue is like, 
how can you juggle those two? And that's where the challenge is of being a two, a dual sport athlete, especially football, basketball, because there's more overlap. But football, baseball, too, it's just been it's an age of specialization. You know, coaches love dual sport athletes and multi-sport athletes in high school. But then when they get them on campus, they would much rather just you stay with their sport the entire time. If you ask any coach and they give you the real answer, they don't want the multi-sport athlete. Hey, unless it, it's good pub, and that's great. And hey, they would love. They like the the football players. Uh, the football coaches like it that their their kids run track occasionally, but they don't like it when they miss the spring practice. You know, you think Clay Helton was happy that Adoree Jackson wasn't continuing to develop uh, in spring practice because he was overrunning track. You know, those are the things that you want to be able to do on the side. But if it takes away from your time, because it's not just all right. How much time do you have juggling two sports and and uh, and homework and all that type of stuff? It's juggling the 20 hours that the NCA allows per week. So, you know, the a regular football player, it's, you know, basically cooked in. All right, these are your 20 hours. This is what we can do with you as a player. Now, if you're in dual sport, okay, where do you take away from what everyone else is getting on the in the football program? Because you're only allowed that 20 hours. You can't just add extra hours because you're a dual sport athlete. You don't get 40 suddenly. No, you still have 20 hours as a student athlete, and where is that going to be utilized? Is it going to be utilized at football, at baseball, at track, whatever it is? So that's when the coach is like, I would much rather for you to be over here. And we see someone like Austin O'Byrne, uh, the baseball player, you know, he was basically with the football program until later in the season. I didn't get an exact date, but I think I, I feel like it was in early around early November. Just realized, hey, we're not, I'm not going to play here. I need to get over to baseball and, you know, try to get, you know, try to get work in, try to get, you know, especially with a new staff, I need to get, you know, in their good graces, all that type of stuff. So he basically stopped, uh, stopped with football um, before the end of the season, two-thirds, three-fourths of the way through the season, and went over to baseball full-time for the rest of the fall so he could get all the baseball practices in and whatnot. Um, and then he's not participating in spring practice at all because he's doing he's playing on the baseball team. So, you know, the, that's the challenge really with a dual-sport athlete is those 20 hours – um, whether it be in season or out season, is finding that the mesh of those 20 hours, and that's what Lincoln Riley has talked about this week. It was the challenge with Kyler Murray is he he didn't think that they did very well the first year is because they didn't really have that you know that game plan set up and they learned from it, and that's why I think someone like Deuce Robinson could be better off uh, than Kyler Murray was his first season you know uh, you know at Oklahoma because you know they now have a better game plan of. All right, how much time does he need to be with this program? How much time does he need to be with this program? How much time does he need to be strength training? You know, what strength training does he need to be focusing on? All those type things. I think having a game plan and having someone that's done it before is really a really big asset for Deuce Robinson because there's not too many uh, players around the country or coaches around the country that have this experience. And Lincoln Riley is one of them. Lane Kiffin actually is another one that has it because they've had a couple of guys that have been football, baseball players at Ole Miss Taiwan Malone, if you remember that name, Chris, the big defensive tackle from New Jersey, you know, he's yeah. a big body guy that, you know, is on the baseball team as well. So, um, you know, there are, it's not unheard of to be a dual sport baseball, football, but there's probably a handful of guys every year. You know, it, it's just the specialization of not only individual sports, but specialization of players um, within their sports, all that, you know, makes it where coaches want to hold on to their players as long as possible and don't want anyone else, you know, taking up the time that they need to be developing because college is such a big time for development. Is it cool 
to be a dual baseball football guy now with Deuce Robinson, Austin Overn, Mario Williams, I know, has some baseball potential. He's a big baseball fan. And then Anthony Lucas came out and said after one spring practice, hey, I'm going to play on the baseball team next year. It seems like it's cool again to be football baseball guys, uh, Shotgun. I mean, USC has that lineage, that history. Like I said, with Anthony Munoz, Jack Del Rio, that group, uh, you know, there is a lineage there. Um, but Mario Williams, you know, it, it was it was a cool idea for him, but he wasn't able to play last year because he transferred from Oklahoma to USC in, in between semesters. So, you know, you're not eligible to play baseball. The previous coaching staff was going to have him try to come over, but then when the coaching staff was fired, the new staff was brought in, he didn't really put forth that, that effort to go over and introduce himself and do all those things and, you know, really make the effort like, hey, I really want to play baseball. And especially after the season he had and being a key uh, part of the USC offense, you know, that was kind of the thing is, you know, if someone blows up that first year, that's when it gets that much tougher to go play that second sport. And that could be the case with Deuce Robinson, too. If you, he comes in, obviously the tight end depth is thin. If he blows up his first year, Trey London blows up his fresh, first year freshman wide receiver, then the secondary sport, you give it a try, but you realize, all right, I know where I got to focus my attention. Uh, and, you know, the second sport kind of gets left, uh, left behind. That may happen with Austin O'Vern with football as well because he's blown up and done so well as a freshman. Whereas if you struggle for a couple of years as an you know, early playmaker, you don't get much time or whatever, you're injured, and you go to the secondary sport and you have some success there, then that you know that's when you see those guys last a little bit longer. But Mario Williams, because he played so much this past year, the baseball coaches were not surprised that it wasn't his first priority to get over to the baseball field and you know uh, introduce himself and do all that type of stuff. He did eventually make it over there, I was told, but – you know, it wasn't like it was a, you know, he was gung-ho about being over there and I've got to make this happen type of thing. And Anthony Lucas, I didn't know anything about him as a baseball prospect until he said the other day that he was going to try to play baseball. So uh, take for that what you will. Um, you know, I don't have a ton of connection to high school baseball in Arizona, but I don't think, I think it's more, that's more along the lines of Porter Gustin baseball player in high school, Tyler Vaughn's baseball player in high school, much more than John John Vaughn's, who is excelling at UCLA, both as a linebacker and outfielder for the Bruins. Shotgun, you've been incredible this entire podcast. I haven't really been doing much. I've just been <laughs> letting you talk, which is no different from the actual composite two-star recruits. What is the the – I'm going to sneak in here a little bit. The baseball team is actually pretty hot right now. Is that is that correct? Yeah, baseball team has been playing well, off to a really good start in Pac-12 play. They're nine and three in Pac-12 play. They'll have a you know an off a non-conference weekend, not an off weekend, a non-conference weekend this week against San Diego State. They are 17, 10 and one. They are right now kind of a bubble program for whether or not they can uh, be a postseason team, which is crazy because you know the the staff got hired late. They didn't have time to really – there was no Caleb Williams coming in to you know be the rescue um, in the transfer portal. So this is a much different rebuild than what Lincoln Riley was able to do in the first year uh, with Caleb Williams and that group. So there was no big star that they were able to bring in. They got a couple of nice pieces from the transfer portal, but it was really late. They lost a number of players from last year's team that are playing at Texas and you know places across the country. So, you know, the, what they've done has been pretty remarkable, uh, and it just shows the, the talented coaching staff that they hired 
not only Andy Stankiewicz, but the group they put around him. I think it's one of the best coaching staffs that I've seen uh, assembled. Um, when you can have Sergio Brown, at, who's been you know 20 years, has been an on-field coach basically, to have him as their director of baseball operations, I believe it is. Um, but what, whatever his position is, it's an off-field position. Like that's that's super talented. If you're fifth coach, uh, your fifth per- person player personnel person. Uh, is a, a coach that's been on the field for 20 years. That's kind of the Alabama football analyst type thing. Uh, that's what USC baseball's uh, coaching staff has done so far. And, you know, they've been really successful so far in what they've been able to do. It's, they've got a tough road the second half of, of conference play, but, you know, they've done the, the things that you need to do. They're throwing strikes, they field the ball, and they put the ball in play. It seems super simplistic. But that goes a really long way. So, uh, you know, it's, it's been really fun to kind of watch them and the fact that they are excelling, especially after, you know, they got off to a pretty slow start. I think they were three, three, four and one or something. They, they swept their first weekend and then for five games they didn't win. They didn't step on home plate to win a game, uh, stepped Oof. over it and then got tagged out, which showed – you know how far this team has come already in this short of a season, a team that didn't know how to win going on the road at Auburn, a team that has been in the college world series for a couple of seasons and, you know, couldn't get a win there because they failed to step on home plate and ended up with a tie because of the travel curfew on that day. But, you know, that's that since then they've really reeled off. They've won every weekend since then and been very successful. They don't have a ton of depth, so they lose some midweek games, but, you know, which is why their record is, you know, 17 and 10 and one rather than being a little bit better. But the, the way they played recently and the fact that they took a series from number two Stanford, who was the preseason pick for the Pac-12 champion, who was the Pac-12 tournament champion last year, who has made it to the College World Series the last two years. That is a program that does everything right right now and is moving, continuing to move in the right direction, is continuing to be a top 10 program year in and year out, three or four years in a row now. And USC took a series from them. That was a big statement series there and something that gave them a ton of confidence going forward. So, um, I, you know, it's, it's been fun to watch so far. Shotgun, thank you so much for joining us. You actually recently just did a podcast talking about baseball team and Andy Stankiewicz and, and all that. You had Jack Smith on. Was that a hurt it or was that a, a pair style? This is uh, potentially a new new development oh, here. We're gonna potentially we're gonna try to do uh, a baseball podcast once a week. You know, 20, 30 minutes, not too long, but just kind of recapping what's happened in the week before and where the Trojans kind of stand. You know, and their their march to potentially uh, getting into the NCAA tournament and for the first time since twenty fifteen, only second time since two thousand five, I believe it is. Um, so we're going to follow along and see what kind of happens and see if they can continue to hang at the top of the, the Pac-12 standings. Right now, they are, by wins and losses, they are in first place. They have the most wins. They have nine wins in Pac-12 play. By percentage, win percentage, they are tied, or they're in third place behind a couple of teams that are 7-2, and two, I believe, um, where USC is 9-3. So they're right there in the mix. So that tells you what this group has done so far. Now, they did play some of the – Besides playing Stanford, they played some of the softer teams in the conference, so the second half will be tough. But, again, it's been fun to watch, and uh, it'll be fun to see what they can do going forward. And Jack and I are going to try to kind of you know, uh, recap that week by week. Any creative name for the podcast you guys are talking about? You need a fun name. It just can't be podcast. I know. that's the, we, we just wanted to jump in because it was midseason. We started off. We're going to give it uh, this next week to try to figure it out uh, You know, and see if we get a name. If you guys have a good name, throw it in the comments of the two-star composite as well. And one thing I do want to uh, correct uh, for us, Chris, the draft this year is from um, 
right? I'm, I've got the wrong thing. The draft right. is in, in July in Seattle at the All-Star Game. Um, so that is July. I just lost it. Anyways, it, in July there. So if Deuce Robinson does get drafted um, and – the question will be if he signs immediately. Some players will sign the next day. Some players wait towards the deadline. It kind of depends on, uh, you know, teams, you know, they give a number and we'll see if the team has a little bit more money in their pool. So if he signs immediately, then he would not have too long before, you know, he would basically go in and be around, um, you know, be around the, the, the organization and try to learn as much, like I said, you know, how they kind of do things and whatnot. But then I think that he would, come to USC at the beginning of August and get going as far as football goes, if if you were to play both. All right. If you have a potential baseball podcast name for Shotgun, send it his way. He will listen to you. I believe his DMs are open. So get in there. Give him some silly names. Hit by pitch. No, that's too simple. That's too simple. I, I can think <laughs> of something better than that. Shotgun, thank you so much for coming on my podcast and being the first guest of the Composite Two Star Recruits. Do not have me on your baseball podcast. I will bring down the credibility what you're trying to do over there. But thank you so much for coming on and sharing your expertise about baseball, the draft, and, you know, giving us some previews for potential Deuce Robinson on the diamond. All right. Now the chore for you, Chris, thanks for having me. Now the chore for you is can you get Gerard corralled into a short podcast so that this does not add, uh, this portion of the podcast does not add three or four more to three hour podcast and it becomes another four hour one. I'd rather solve nuclear fusion than uh, to have this have be a shorter podcast. I, I cannot do to such a thing. It was already going to be a jam podcast before you came on. We did an hour here, which I knew it would happen. And that's why we, we I didn't have him on this with with me because you he could talk. You could talk. It would have been three hours of just us three talking. Just this part of the podcast alone, Juice Robinson and baseball. So I had to make an editorial decision. And just make it me. And we kept it to about an hour. So, again, I thank you for coming on, for being the official first guest of the Composite Two Star Recruits. Helium boys forever. And with that, (laughs) we'll get back to the regular part of the Composite Two Star Recruits. Gerard, how was your early break now that I I went and talked to Shotgun Spratling? How was your break? Are we still uh, same day recording here? Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're we're still same day recording. The, he didn't go that long. I'm one to talk, right? Is that the pot column? That yeah, that on? that you're one to talk, and this is the reason why I think this podcast is going 935 hours. Might be the longest one in history, but we're back. We still have the rest of the show to do, Jordan. The question is, can you rapid fire Under Armour next camp? You know, I, I absolutely cannot. Even if I tried, you would not let me. But we're not quite there yet. We do have to preview another commitment. You know, last episode, previewing Deuce Robinson commitment. This time around, previewing four-star safety Aaron Flowers. So the commitment's starting to pick up a little bit, Gerard. Starting to pick up. We talked a little bit about Aaron Flowers last week, about that looming commitment. Well, the time is now. He's going to be making his commitment on April 7th. That is Friday. Uh, four-star safety out of Forney, Texas. USC is among a bunch of contenders along with Alabama, Oregon, Oklahoma. USC does have the crystal ball lead right now. 
but anything can happen as we move into Friday. Aaron Flowers, could he snap the 2024 recruiting cycle commitment drought for USC Gerard? Can he do it? That's a very good question. And we've had to reach out to some folks because Aaron Flowers, not a big social media guy, not a big interview guy. And obviously in Forney, Texas, it's not necessarily our hood, not a guy that we're familiar with uh, that's been out here for seven on seven or camps or anything of that nature. So he took that unofficial visit to USC and uh, promptly came out with the mm-hmm. date that he wanted to commit. And that's usually a good sign for the last school that prospect visited. And so I think there are some people kind of reading between the lines a little bit with that last visit that he took to USC. Um, Interestingly enough, you know, he grew up a USC fan from some of the sources that I've spoken to. And, you know, he's that player who talked about this last year, very much in the mold of Braxton Myers, Warren Roberson, Tyler Scott, that hybrid safety cornerback that sort of nickelback that has the size of a safety but plays and has the coverage skills as a corner and in high school is used a lot as a corner now with flowers he started out playing corner and because he's a pretty cerebral kid from what i understand uh, in that district in texas uh, a lot of um, the the coaches and people that have watched him play up close really talk a lot about his ability uh, to be able to call plays, diagnose plays. And I think, you know, in high school at the safety position, you're able to make much more of an impact. So it's kind of a good thing to see that he moved from corner to safety. He did play uh, quarterback in their matchup against Longview. When I went back and looked at film against Jalen Hale, who's the wide receiver that ended up signing with Alabama, one of the top receivers in the 2023 class, uh, he was there playing cornerback and he showed pretty well. Uh, but they move him back as they get into district play, uh, mainly because, again, as a safety, he's able to make an impact on more of the field. You know, it's kind of easy to take a cornerback out of the game at the high school level. You just don't throw over there. <laughs> so at a safety that can move around and the guy that you know, I'm told he actually measured in at USC at 6'1", 208 pounds. So he's a bit bigger than his profile says right now. I think his profile is like six foot 180. He's a bit bigger Uh, built almost like maybe a quasi sort of nickel backer maybe that's a position again that USC has been chasing since last class and so it's very interesting to see that now they are from what I understand they're probably top two top three Uh, I think the one school that nobody's really talking about here a lot of people say okay USC is the leader and and I've heard that as well I've heard that USC definitely has um, uh, kind of a, a sort of, like I said, grew up uh, a USC fan, oddly enough, even though he's, you know, outside Dallas and, and doesn't have necessarily a lot of exposure to Southern California. He doesn't have any, you know, direct ties to Southern California, but still grew up kind of following USC it, it, during a time where USC was not necessarily all that nationally relevant. Uh, however, another school that's definitely in the mix from what I understand is Oregon. You know, everybody talks about USC. They talk about Oklahoma. I think Alabama wants to see more of him. I think Alabama would like him to come in and maybe camp. And I don't get the sense that he's that type of kid, that he's going to go through the process, commit, and then kind of reopen the process. I don't think that's going to happen unless there's a coaching shift somewhere that he commits to. So Alabama, I don't think is involved. Oklahoma, I actually have not heard a whole whole lot about Oklahoma recently from people that I trust in Texas. Really, it was Oregon 
that came up quite a few times. Chris Hampton, the co-defensive coordinator now at Oregon that was at Tulane, recruits that part of Texas very well. And so he's a known name, and he's a guy that has, has, has recruited those schools. And I got the sense that Oregon was still trying to make a push. And I, I, I kind of feel like USC is the school to beat, but Oregon is not giving up. And Oregon is not making it easy. And any time you've got Oregon, Miami, Tennessee, Louisville, you know, you've got the five families of NIL involved. You sort of go, okay, hey. we're, we're thinking it's USC, but, you know, you kind of put it out there like, hey, you know, don't be shocked here. And so I'm going to say don't be shocked that Oregon is maybe a little closer in this battle uh, than people think. A lot of people think Oklahoma, USC, but I, I definitely think that Oregon is uh, is not giving up and they're trying to make, you know, kind of a, an 11th hour push here. 11th hour is the Oregon Duck specialty, but, you know, we will know more in, in the coming days as that decision winds down for Aaron Flowers. But USC has a lot going for them in this recruitment. As we mentioned, did get the last visit, did grow up a USC fan. We'll have to see. And maybe, you know, the, the long-awaited 2024 drought will be over. Joey Olsen might finally have some company it's a very lonely uh, commitment group chat for him right now, just kind of talking to himself. The uh, the GIF image of uh, Millhouse from Simpsons playing Frisbee with himself. That's what it's like to be Joey Olsen. But hopefully he will get a new fellow commitment, U.S. future Trojan, in his group chat very soon. Gerard, let's jump into the meat of our programming. That is the Under Armour camp. We were out there for Mission Viejo. It's the annual Under Armour Regional in L.A., always at Mission Viejo. Look, I always have a great time at Under Armour Camp. It's a long day, but it always feels very productive. We usually get a lot of interviews. and That was the case once again. You, me, five stars only, Jared Perez was out there as well, taking video, taking photos, doing a lot of interviews, a lot of interviews between us. But a lot of prospects that we got to look at and evaluate I, I screwed up last time, you know, when you were talking about the uh, the O-line, D-line thing at uh, Pylon, and I threw you off. So I'm not going to throw you off again by asking you a loaded question at the top. I'm going to let you kind of guide this one, at least start where you want to start, and then we can go from there. Well, we actually we did do a top performers <laughs> we did. list we did. for the camp. So we actually do have that. And off the top of my head, I, I, I probably remember most of the players, but I don't know if I know – the actual order of such but I think just getting into the the day as it sort of unraveled for us you know they bring in the offensive line and the defensive line first and it was a a good looking group of offensive linemen and defensive linemen not a lot of guys with USC scholarship offers however a lot of good looking kids and I think you know at the top of the list in terms of guys with a lot of juice guy with the USC scholarship offer and a guy that's being heavily recruited coast to coast is Manasi Atite. And he's a big kid, really long arms, originally from Ghana, very raw, very raw. And I will say uh, the rawness of his game, it definitely was underlined throughout uh, not just the one-on-one period, but I felt like the drills as well. And so, you know, I didn't talk to him. I think it was five stars that spoke to him, mm-hmm. but I did talk to some other people that were associated with him and uh, chatting with guys like Brandon Huffman, who's you know been on top of his recruitment since day one, 
and, and Greg Biggins, who's all obviously knows everything going on in the West Coast. The man is plugged in to every single source that there is. Um, I definitely got the sense that USC is maybe on the outside looking in at this point for Atete. I, I felt like he's going to be one of those guys that he's on the international freight train to a college and reminding me a little bit of uh, Olawale Betiku, who was a former five-star out of Sarah defensive end who played at USC before transferring to Illinois. And I know the background with him coming from Nigeria, going to an international camp, getting hooked up with some handlers and some people that were able to finagle and get him uh, a green card, uh, basically, to come to the United States. And then sort of being under their wing. And for him, the big difference in, in the thing that I think led him to USC and not to another school was that he kind of broke free from some of those people. And I don't want to get too much into the background of, of his personal story, but he was living with LeVar Arrington, the former uh, Redskin linebacker, former Penn State great. And they had a falling out. And, you know, Wale kind of ended up sort of on his own a bit. And, and Wale was was a bit more mature, I think, and a, and a bit more um, aware and, and could handle himself. And it ended up working in USC's benefit. So with Etite, I don't know if that's going to be the case. I've heard a lot of talk about him ending up at Miami, uh, maybe Florida State, uh, ending up in Florida. And um, I think, you know, he kind of talked a little bit to Jared about not necessarily liking the West Coast too much. And so from a recruiting update standpoint, I didn't get the warm and fuzzies about Mana. You know, I felt like uh, Mana Etite was not necessarily the guy that you thought, okay, you know, this is one of those players that USC is, um, you know, real close into uh, being able to, to, to make a big move in his recruitment, just coming away from that unofficial visit. It does sound like, though, USC is at least in the contention to maybe get an official visit and maybe change that. But like you said, body-wise, Mana really jumps out. I mean, there was talk about, you know, he's a guy who's still learning his body in football. But it, when he does figure out or if he does figure out, he's the kind of guy who can be like a top 10 NFL draft pick. That's kind of the 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 physical abilities that he has. And he looked very much different from a lot of the offensive linemen there. Just that that wingspan looked like an athlete. Originally, a he came over to play basketball, I believe, was the uh, – he came over – he wanted to come over during 2020, which ended up being COVID, so got sent back. So basketball was the original path. Now he finds himself as a four-star offensive lineman prospect and a lot of physical gifts, a lot of raw ability, a raw ability but – you know, he's one of those guys you look down the line in five years, he ends up being, you know, maybe one of the top offensive linemen in that year's draft if he figures it out, puts it all together and, you know, finally comes together for him. So keep an eye on that. But like you said, Mana, you know, kind of maybe on the outside looking in, but it does sound like USC is in position to maybe grab an official visit. But there were other offensive linemen that we can kind of jump around and talk about. One of them or two of them that really stood out in terms of uh, the guys that don't have USC offers, but we came away thinking like, hey, these guys are, just store those names away. One of those is uh, Packy Finau and Champ Westerbrooks, who has a ridiculously long wingspan, arms, and, and Packy, who's got a really nice athletic looking frame, six foot four, six foot five range out of uh, Oak, excuse me, Oak Hill High School, which is the same 
school that Jason Rodriguez came out of, which coincidentally we also kind of saw at Under Armour for the first time. So maybe a, a next kind of uh, iteration of guys coming out of Oak Hill. Paki, who I know has picked up a bunch of uh, a Pac-12 offers. USC is not involved as of right now, but Paki Feynau and Champ Westerbrooks were two guys that caught our attention for sure. Yeah, I mean, Champ Westerbrooks, it was JP. He was like, look at this dude. He's got long arms. And I kind of look over. I see him standing there, and he's, you know, scratching his kneecaps without bending over. I mean, he's <laughs> got really super long arms, high cut. And so you say, okay, well, that's interesting. He's got a, a unique body type. He played guard in one-on-ones. Now, you and Jarrett got to see more of the one-on-ones than I did because I ended up peeling off and going over to the running backs because they are running drills. And quite frankly, the running back drills are more important to an evaluation for the running back position than one-on-ones. You know, I'm kind of overseeing running backs running Texas routes over the middle of the field where there's no defensive linemen, no linebackers, no nothing, and they're okie-doking. Uh, these these linebackers that are you know six three two ten it just it's like okay I mean, that's supposed to happen man I'm watching Kobe Boykins just completely make people look silly and it's like yeah Kobe Kobe Boykins is you know five six 175 pounds he's supposed to make those guys look silly so I want to see the bad drills I want to kind of see footwork and how these guys catch the ball etc in in these drills so I peeled away but I got to see like the first two maybe three reps from Westerbrooks. And the, the thing that kind of jumped out at me, he was so composed. He had mm-hmm. such a good anchor. Like, he sat so well in his pass protection. You know, he's got those long arms. He's a guy that's 265. He's clearly able to put on more weight. And he was playing on the interior. And I just thought, that's an interesting prospect. You know, that's going to be somebody that somebody's going to look at and say, what would he look like as a center? You know, what would he look like? as a guard with those long arms and the ability to fill out. And if we look at the NFL draft, a lot of guys not looking like uh, Manesse Atiti. They're not looking like they're 310 pounds coming out of high school. They are 260, 250 pounds. So with Pocky, Pinal, and Champ Westerbrooks, you kind of gravitate these days to looking at the guys that might be a little undersized, but athletically they do some things that catch your eye. And then you kind of look back and you say, okay, does he play volleyball? Is he, does he play basketball? Does he do other sports where you can sort of evaluate that, that, that athleticism in a different arena? So that's kind of where we are with both of those guys. But I thought, um, you know, unfortunately for Paki Fanal, he was going up against uh, Jaquim Stewart. So that was, you know, one of the better players, yeah. even though just a freshman. And we'll talk a little bit about him. Um, that was kind of, you know, the thing where, you know, he's an offensive lineman and he was playing left tackle uh, or actually he was playing right tackle, I think, and he was going one-on-one against him. So, you know, kind of a difficult thing um, when you're talking about camps and when the pads go on, offensive linemen are able to do a little more, you know, they're able to grab a little more. There's a little more there that they can get a hold of. So things start to slow down a bit, but when you're in uh, those dry fit shirts and shorts, uh, it's pretty difficult for those guys to stay in front of the defensive linemen. But I did think with Chap uh, Westerbrooks, he kind of stood out a little bit. And, and something you kind of glossed over with uh, Manasseh Atite, how did he look one-on-one? Because he did not make our top performers list. And that top performers list is about performance. It's not about, well, this guy could potentially do this, this, and this down the road. It's like, okay, what did you do in one-on-ones? What did you do in drills? And 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 I saw Atite and I went, eh. 
he was all right. You know, he got beat a couple times and he, you know, he mm-hmm. kind of looked out of sorts sometimes. I guess what was your opinion of him? And then kind of looking down the list when we get to actual Joaquin Stewart and his one-on-ones against uh, Pocky Fanal. I think he hit it on the head. Just like, you know, he, he flashed a little bit at times, but it wasn't all there. Out of sorts is, is a great frame or a great uh, turn of phrase for this. Just, just kind of look, he would start off really well early. And obviously the, the rep is like, what, less than four seconds. He would start off really well, but then he would kind of lose it at the end or, you know, he would get pushed back initially and he would have to recover and he wasn't always there. So, you know, it was, it was a mixed bag for him. He didn't like lose every rep or, or whatnot, but you, you saw what made him a talented offensive line prospect, but it just wasn't all clicking together. And it's also harder for him because, you know, he's not as, I'm sure he hasn't done a ton of, you know, O-line, D-line camps like this and in this setting. And it's, it's catered more toward defensive linemen. Like you said, the pads aren't there. They don't have a lot to, to get a, a leverage on. And it, it's just built more towards the D-line. So he's at, already at a disadvantage and already at a disadvantage of being a, a more raw prospect than other guys uh, that were playing next to him and, and on that offensive side of the ball or O-line group. So wasn't really catered to him. So, yeah, like you said, it was kind of out of sorts, kind of had off footing at times. But, yeah, just just was a mixed bag and didn't see enough there to kind of fight for him to be in that top 10. You know, physically look look really good coming out, walking around, doing drills and stuff. But when it comes to the one on ones, it wasn't really his best day. I'm surprised Westerbrooks didn't get more love from the national guys, because I don't think he made any lists or any eye catchers or anything. How did he do in one-on-ones beyond like the first couple that he had? Did he whiff on some, some plays or some reps? I think there was one where he, he kind of whiffed a little bit, but for the most part, he was pretty, like you said, composed, stable, you know, in this, in this, uh, this drill, it's pretty easy for an offensive lineman to kind of like panic and then lose it against a more aggressive defensive lineman, but those long arms really, really helped him and, you know, kept, kept the distance on a, on a rushing defensive lineman. I believe he did make some, he get, he did get some love from the national guys. I know he, uh, he retweeted your top performers list cause he was happy that <laughs> you gave him some love. So props to him, but yeah, he's just a really interesting body type. Like you said, I, I was looking at him during the, uh, the vertical testing and just walking around and he's like he's got a really big frame like or a bottom half he has like an offensive lineman's bottom half he's really big legs thick trunks we talked about the arm just like scratches kneecaps not even bending down but like his top body just doesn't look like an offensive lineman if you look at the rest of the group a lot of those guys are big barrel chested he kind of had like the smallest upper body not really counting his arms in terms of his length but he had yeah. kind of the smallest upper body kind of like you put a a linebacker body on top of offensive lineman legs but with but you still gave him offensive lineman wingspan and arms it was, it was just a really weird body build is, is what exactly. i was exactly no very unique and and that's something that you know it's like you're an offensive line coach and you've had a player like that you know and you're like oh you know that's kind of one of those guys it's 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 one of those things like, you know, that works or doesn't work until you get that guy. It's like the Eric Gentry body, you know, playing Mike linebacker. You're like, that doesn't work. Six, six, 200 pounds. That's impossible. But then 
you know, you look at the physicality and just sort of how he plays, the results are basically what speak for themselves. And you go, well, you know what? We can turn this into a positive because this is something that not a lot of people see every day. And mm-hmm. so you can kind of flip the script. But Champ at Loyola High School, so local kid, uh, we'll see, you know, if USC gets more involved. He is in contact with USC in communication with USC. But, you know, a lot of these guys um, maybe not camping at schools and what have you. And so with the new coaching staff there, yeah, they're definitely uh, going to have to take maybe a second look at him. And another guy that they're going to be taking second, third, and fourth looks at is Joaquin Stewart, the freshman out of Louisiana, and a guy that I immediately saw. And I'm not going to say what I saw because it's total scout speak in terms of, you know, body type. And this is say he's got some powerful look to him he he just you he has that look it's like dang this dude who is that kid and he was actually uh missed uh titled on the roster it was um uh i can't remember who they had on there jeff scott maybe from modern day but they had somebody on there for modern day and i'm like that kid's at modern day he's 2026 <laughs> and uh somebody corrected me said no he's, he's he's not at modern day but he is a freshman and i said wow okay so that's interesting and you were actually on Joaquin Stewart Thank watch you. because you Thank knew you. he unofficially visited USC and you're like he's here he's here this kid from Louisiana is here uh when you weren't hoping that um the the other kid that was committed to Notre Dame whose name is escaping me Davis uh, was uh Brandon Swain Davis yeah Bra- yeah yeah Swain Davis was the other guy you're just like trying to talk it into existence that he was going to show up to the camp well, I'll, I have to settle for Joaquin Stewart in terms of being at the camp because he was a head turner, as you said, just built differently from a lot of the California defensive linemen that were there. And yeah, just incredible that he's only a freshman going to his sophomore year, six foot six, six foot five range, 270 pounds, 280 pounds. That's what he's listed on his 24-7 sports profile. But yeah, just a different dude working out there, moving out there. He was first in line for every defensive line drill. I like seeing that. I like seeing him being a first in line. And what I noticed about him, and I don't know if this is like a just an SEC thing or a Southern thing, but like every time he would do a drill, he would make a noise. I don't know if you saw this, but he would like, every time he hit the bat, he would like, yeah, he would just like, huh, 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 and he, yeah, he would just let out uh, something. He would just uh, make a noise. He would just make uh, onomatopoeia out of his mouth and, you know, hit the drill, breathe extra hard, make a noise, hit the bag, whatever. And I don't know if that's just like a Southern. Defensive line prospects. Yeah, I don't know if that was a a Southern thing or is a Louisiana thing or just like someone from the uh, SEC territories. I don't know. But I noticed that all the other defensive linemen were kind of quiet. And this guy was going, (laughs) he's like doing all this. Oh, you hear is the bag, but yeah, every time he came, yeah, you did, you did, you knew that you like sort of, you, you heard you that. You turned your head and you looked at it and you saw him and obviously he's phys- physically impressive. So that was just another wrinkle of, you know, being eye catching, but yeah, he did really well in the, uh, the one-on-ones, obviously he's going against older guys, but as someone who was just built differently and built, uh, that, that well, athletically, he was just having his way with guys at times, just sometimes too, 280. I think he measured in. That. Yeah. Just, just too fast at times going inside and he was strong enough to, to be, beat them on the outside, a whipped up packy, a pocky a couple times. So, you know, he had an impressive day and really liked his USC visit, got the offer and just had that Louisiana 
southern drawl. Really impressed with him. He he was very well spoken for being you know a 2026 kid, and he was really excited just to have the experience. He comes from a very small town, Louisiana. I'll have more about it in the war room, but yeah, just a small town kid who was really enjoying you know the process right now, getting all the attention and love being out in California. Really liked the weather, and he, he said he's going to come back. So we'll have to see. Obviously. Everybody in the SEC, SEC territories after him already. Alabama, Auburn, Georgia, Florida State's already offered. LSU, Michigan's already offered. So this will be a tough one. But at least USC is getting them on the ground for, you know, starting to build that early relationship with him. Trying to get that traction, right? That, trying to get that traction. That traction early on. So at the point of which uh, he's uh, starting to actually make serious decisions on schools, that uh, you're you're in that uh, that that group, you know, that can that can be there at the end uh, when it comes to official visits. And and the last guy that I guess we'll talk about on the offensive defensive line is Terry Cunningham. You know, somebody who's been kind of quiet with USC here in uh, the last uh, I would say probably five six months. And talking with him from a recruiting update standpoint, it sounds like he hasn't had a whole lot of. Con- uh, contact with USC consistently lately. Uh, there's been some communication, but uh, as of late, there's definitely other schools that seem to be recruiting him harder. So I kind of get the sense, and I've gotten the sense, you know, talking to the other sources, that he's uh, dipped a little bit on, on USC's board to some extent. Now, from an evaluation standpoint, he looks like he actually lost a little bit of weight. He looked like mm-hmm. he came down a little bit. He still has that great frame. You know, he's got some long arms. He's got broad shoulders. And um, I thought he played well. You know, I thought he looked pretty good. I, I think still a guy that uh, certainly when you're looking at body types among that group, uh, one of the better looking defensive linemen from a body type standpoint. And Remind you to Jakeem Stewart, you know, out of that Georgia territory, SEC country, SEC body that he had. Yeah, different though. I think with Right, Stewart, I just mean like an impressive looking defensive lineman yeah. out of the out of the out of, out of Georgia out of the south kind of yeah yeah no I mean he he definitely he he doesn't stand out quite as much as Stewart did I, I'll just break it down to you Stewart had a nice high butt and long legs he was very I mean he's very well put together like he he looks like a guy that could be playing college football next year mm-hmm. and you see the explosiveness in that build and then you kind of go you know when you see that kind of kid with the, the the profile, like he's got some it factor to getting off the football. And that's what you want to see. And so with T. Cunningham, he's a bit more proportionate in terms of his build. He is long. And he may be even a little longer uh, from that standpoint, um, but not quite the explosiveness, right? Not quite the suddenness that yeah. you get with a guy like Stewart. Now, Stewart was also playing on the edge, and Cunningham's playing inside. And, um, yeah, I mean, he didn't win uh, the reps that I saw. And, again, I only saw, like, two, like, the first few reps that they had. Um, a lot of his reps cleanly. Now, one of those reps, he got held up a little bit. Um, but had a torn shirt. Shirt. Yeah, torn shirt after the first two. Pick a hole in his shirt. Um, but, yeah, not necessarily, um, you know, dominant, I guess. And, and, and that was probably the biggest criticism of him last year, you know, sitting out those first five games. And then coming in, and we filmed, I don't know, like three games of him last year. And just against that competition, which quite frankly, when it came to Los Alaminos' schedule, was sort of back end in terms of the teams that were really like the big-time teams that they were playing. And until they got to the playoffs, 
they really had a little bit of a lull in their schedule. And against some of those teams, like, like Newport Harbor, he wasn't necessarily a guy that was like hard to block for them. You know, he, he had some flashes, but he didn't have the dominance that everybody thought he was going to have uh, immediately on those teams. And so, you know, it was a little par for the course from that standpoint. But like I said, still a body type that's hard to find on the West Coast. And, you know, I, I don't know if it's a guy that you just stop calling, you know, because of that. Uh, now, certainly he's been around a bit, taking a lot of visits. Uh, he's soaking up the process. And maybe, you know, that sometimes rubs coaches the wrong way or they don't feel like, okay, you know, we're putting our best foot forward in contacting you, but you're not reciprocating. Um, I, I do think it's a little bit of both, though. I do think USC probably reviewed some of his uh, film from his junior season and was like, okay, you know, uh, and, um, you know, maybe there's some other guys that they're a bit more excited about, but um, certainly beggars can't be choosers. Um, the defensive front, you know, when you're USC and you need some bigger guys, uh, T.A. Cunningham, probably, you know, a good 260, 265 at this point. Like I said, he looked like he, he, he leaned out, but, you know, I don't know if he's actually dropped a lot of weight or he just gained some muscle and uh, was a little bit, uh, you know, just a little better shape. But he looked good, uh, I thought, just physically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. He definitely looked slimmer, uh, slimmed down, as I said, and just looked better physically than when we first saw him. So, yeah, I, I would also agree that you that USC should probably maybe keep tabs on him a little bit more, you know, keep him warm. He does seem to be really enjoying the process right now but yeah that's a that's a body you don't find a lot and we never know what his senior year is going to look like and it, i don't know if he's at los alamitos i really don't know where he's going to end up either that's so calorie goes back to the south i was talking to his brother tk cunningham and i asked like are you guys still at los al and he just kind of like gave me a look like uh I, I don't i don't really know where we are right now so it, it seems like they don't really have a high school at the moment so the, if, if T.A. and his brother will be in California, I'm not really sure. Maybe they'll find a high school here. Or maybe they'll go somewhere else. But I don't know how for long T. the Cunninghams are going to be in California. That's what Interesting. I'm saying. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we know there are two running backs in Southern well, California. Well, well, but quickly, we, before we go to the running backs, I did want to give a shout-out to Eugene Brooks. Oh, who that's I thought, right. We didn't, yeah, we didn't talk about him. Yeah, I just wanted to add Eugene Brooks. I just realized he wasn't on the list, but we have to talk about him because he does hold a USC offer. You know, six foot five, three hundred and thirty pounds, big fella, listed as an interior offensive lineman, but played mostly right tackle when it came to the one on one drills. He said he wanted, really wanted to show that he could play on the edge, that he has the athleticism to play out there. Just wanted to showcase that. Did put some. Some reps in on the interior at right guard. But for the most part, Eugene Brooks was really dominating when it came to the one-on-one portion. Just dominated everyone he came against. Got into some a little bit of a scrap. You know, Gerard, you've seen it. You know, those linemen hold out those arms a little bit a little bit longer than usual after the whistle. Just to really stare down a guy and let him know, like, hey, I just, I just beat your ass in this rep. And I'm just going to hold it out there like a fish on a hook. I'm just holding out there and... Eugene Brooks, from what I saw, did not lose a single rep throughout every rep that he took. Ended up being an MVP for the day. You know, USC has been in communication with him. He hasn't gone up to, to campus since he went up in January, I believe. Got the re-offer or the offer. Can't remember. I believe he did have an offer before. But he hasn't really been up throughout the spring. 
So maybe they'll, they'll try to uh, correct that, making a visit here through the final two weeks and maybe even the spring game. But sounds like they need to get him back on campus and, you know, get that communication, get re-kickstart re the, uh, the recruitment. Rekindle the relationship. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, one of the interesting things talking to him is, A, he wants to play offensive tackle. And he talked about showing that he has the athleticism to play on the edge in the camp. And, of course, you know, at a camp, that's one thing. But he's probably about 6'3", maybe 6'4". Yeah. Definitely looks more like an interior lineman. So I think Not the tackle gonna, body we've talked about. Yeah, I think that's going to come into play as to, you know, who's going to say the right things about, yeah, we'll give you a chance to play off the tackle uh, as opposed to just scooting you in inside. So I think that's going to be interesting with USC. USC, obviously – They've got some good options right now on offensive line, you know, and, and sometimes those can get soaked up real quick. All of a sudden you think, you know, we're looking at the defensive back position last year and then you're going into the uh, golden hour June official visit weekend. And you're like, okay, man, you got Warren Roberson, you got Braxton Myers, you've got, you got all these guys like who, how many tankies are they taking? And then they end up getting none. <laughs> so you know, that, that kind of thing can um, – it can change on you real quick. But uh, Eugene Rob, uh, Eugene Brooks, a guy that, um, yeah, USC kind of got on kind of early and then he got kind of quiet and then he came back up for that visit and uh, has certainly been dominant at a lot of camps, a lot of those events. So he has been a guy that has a reputation of being very good uh, at these events. And so um, we'll see, you know, with, with how things shake out here uh, over the next several months, you know, is he a guy that – you know, USC pushes hard to get on campus for an official visit. And once you see that, then you know, all right, that's a guy. You know, that's a guy that they're circling. That's, a, that's an important uh, recruit for them. And, um, you know, you kind of see what USC's intentions are. Um, but uh, breaking away from Eugene Brooks, uh, my segue to running backs and linebackers was ruined. But I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We have to talk I, about we, You know what? You did the right thing, Chris. You did the right thing. You gave Eugene his props. He deserved those props. He was number two on our <laughs> top performers list. So, yeah, I mean, goes without saying. But uh, two guys from the linebacker running back group that made the top performers list as well. See what I did there? Uh, right, Nick Frazier and Jordan Davison, the modern-day duo running backs. And uh, unfortunately, you know, low-key, the linebacker position – just looking at the roster looked kind of good. We were like, oh, there's some guys here. And then none of them showed up. Uh, so or if they didn't really, show up, they didn't participate. Yeah. I'm so, talking about Naki Tuakoi, who I was really excited to see, but ended up having something with his back. And he was there. He had a he had the uh the the muscle shirt jersey on, but did not participate in any of the events. So so got to talk with him, but I disappointed didn't get to see uh Naki out there. Uh moving around and dylan williams uh he mm -hmm. swapped a top seven that didn't have usc on it but didn't show up to the camp so we'll talk a little bit about that later so the linebacker group uh kind of it, it kind of fell apart on us a little bit in terms of you know looking for guys that were already sort of on usc's radar but nevertheless that allowed us to concentrate a little more on the running back group which by the way came out and did one-on-ones while everybody was trying to get interviews with the offensive defensive line so a lot of a lot of the uh, the writers were, were kind of complaining about that, but I, uh, being that um, I know how to uh, um, delegate uh, content, <laughs> uh, was able to get JP and you, you to go. go over there and do some offensive line, defensive line interviews while I just focused and filmed uh, Nate Frazier and Jordan Davidson. And I will say Nate Frazier 
lived up to the billing. He made me look good. You know, he came out uh, after running a, a PR um, in the 200 meters and, and running a 10.58 in the 100 meters. Decided to come out next day, Sunday, and uh, and go out and get himself an MVP as a running back. And so, you know, he's um, like about five ten and a half, five eleven, about two hundred pounds now, and um, one of the quickest, uh, one of the most dynamic running backs of that group. And another guy, another guy that uh, likes the, to to make some like uh, jujitsu sounds as he's running you know you always know nate frazier's going through a rep because you get the and so he's doing that and um and and looking good looking explosive uh uh, just uh really good footwork catching the ball flawlessly very very natural receiver i mean he comes from playing receiver and cornerback that was what he did at at, at saint matthias pias uh in downey and so that's kind of his position he's learning the running back position more and one gripe that i have i just wish from a camp format standpoint that we would have seen some running back linebacker pass protection drills, because again, I just don't feel like we really get anything out of these one-on-one passing drills where running backs are running these okie doke routes against linebackers. And it's like, yeah, man, you're going to get a linebacker one-on-one in all that space. What do you expect's going to happen? That doesn't show me a whole lot. Of course, Nate Frazier went 10, 5, 8. You're going to put a linebacker on him. That's 6'3", 210. You think that guy's going to stay with him 30, 40 yards down? <laughs> you know? That's not, it's not, this doesn't make any sense. So, you know, we didn't get to see that sort of competition, uh, which I'd like to see incorporated because it, it would give the linebackers a little more of a chance to be a little more competitive. Um, and, and in that regard, watching Jordan Davidson, the sophomore from modern day, uh, a, a good six foot, 215, probably going on 220 now, uh, a guy that, um, again, footwork drills. Not you know quite the natural receiver that Nate Frazier is. We clocked him unofficially. When I say we, I mean Adam Gorney from Rivals.com. Uh, our good friend Adam actually busted out the iPhone and, and did a little unofficial clocking of the 40-yard dash and, and thought it was a 4.58. So we're like, okay, well, you know, that's something. I don't know that he ran a 4.58, but that's not a bad time for a kid that big. And, and certainly with Jordan Davidson, it, it's really all about production. You know, it's all about uh, getting those extra yards and being just a really good overall player, a, a good combo back who's got that extra size and who's got a little extra power behind him. But he's also got good moves and good agility. And he showed that one of the bad drills where Brandon Jacobs, all 6'4, 240 of him, I don't know if you guys remember him as a running back in the NFL for the Giants, but he looks kind of like Tyron Smith. He's like a kind of a, a little smaller Tyron Smith. He was coaching up the running backs and he was doing this drill where the running backs had to run between bags, but they were getting a bag thrown at them. They're basically just thrown at their face by, by Brandon Jacobs, and they had to make a move away from it. And, and Jordan Davidson did one of these little just okey-doke moves and totally juked out the bag, and everybody was like, oh, oh. And uh, one of the other coaches was yelling, hey, yeah, yeah, that's the modern-day kid. That's the modern-day kid. And Brandon Jacobs goes, yeah, we got two of these modern-day guys here today. So, yeah, kind of looking good, modern-day, representing a bit at the uh, UA camp next and so you know both of those guys made our top list i thought they both looked really good um you know frazier from a recruiting update standpoint not getting a lot of love from usc not getting a whole lot of uh pressure from usc he has been in contact he was up there in january for the junior day which was you know sort of that early you know bringing all the modern day and bosco guys in and um you know talk to the coaching staff 
but just doesn't have much of a relationship with Kyle McDonald at this point. Talked a little bit with Lincoln Riley. I mean, he's getting recruited from everybody. He just got that Georgia offer. And so, you know, he's kind of becoming a national recruit here. And with those track times and you're 5'11", 200 pounds, and you can catch the ball, obviously, you know, that's, that's, that's just going to come with it. So, you know, I don't want to say USC is completely out of it at this point, but they're definitely the, the, the sands of the hourglass uh, are pouring out. And um, if USC is going to make a move, they got to probably make a move pretty quick because he's definitely starting to formulate some opinions on schools. And, uh, and those two guys, Nate Frazier and Jordan Davidson, are, are like, you know, two, two peas in a pod. You know, they're very good friends. You can see them. They're hanging yeah. out in line together, chatting, talking, and what have you. And, and the one thing I also have to note about Nate Frazier is the effort that he gives in all of these drills. Like, he just came from track. And the guy, you know, just did a PR in the 200. And he was out there busting his ass on every drill. Like, And, and that's true. Just, you know, the, the, the couple of seven-ons that he's done. Uh, when he's not running track, he's out there running those routes hard. Like he gives his all. It's seven on seven. Like who cares? He's a couple reps off, but he doesn't do that. He's always a guy that's pushing, and you can tell. Like he he's like, yo, this I got to. I'm hungry. I I got to get, you know, everything I, I can from this process. I got to eat, you know. And uh, I think that's always you know a good thing to see. So yeah, um, Nate Frazier definitely looked good. Jordan Davidson definitely looked definitely looked good. Um, didn't really you know, get to, to watch or focus too, too much on other guys. Um, but I thought uh, both of those guys uh, were, were very well represented uh, from modern day high school. I can't really speak to the running backs because, as you said, I was uh, off doing some interviews with the O-line, D-line group. So that was more Gerard's table to set. And Nate Frazier, as we know, is a Gerard Martinez favorite and will continue to be one of his favorites since he's been with him since St. Pius Matthias. But the final group of the day was the wide receivers and defensive backs. And this was our longest list of guys that we were there to watch and see and talk to from Xavier Jordan, Marcus Harris, Aaron Malik Butler, the former USC commit, Davon Mitchell, the, the big Los Al tight end who transferred from Allen, Texas, the number one tight end in 2025, Dijon Lee. Chuck McDonald, Darius Dixon. So there were a lot of options around. I think we got to start with Xavier Jordan, who picked up a USC offer this offseason. And this is my first time seeing him. And I was very impressed with that kid's hands. That kid caught everything his way. And he made such tough catches look easy, look routine, look made him look like on-air drills. And he would just get so open going to the sidelines. The only catch I, I that I saw that he didn't catch was an overhead, a ball that went over him on the sideline, kind of reached up for it, almost brought it in with one hand, and he probably would have got it in if the defensive back wasn't holding his other free arm like behind his back to, to prevent him from making the catch. That was the only like catch I saw him not make, and he even almost made that, even with a literal hand held behind his back, so... Xavier Jordan really impressed me with his hands. Definitely not a guy that jumps out at you physically, you know, and, and looking at some of the other receivers and sort of the build. And then none of the receivers uh, that we're going to talk about, to my knowledge, ran the 40. I think all that whole group basically skipped the 40. So we went over there after they did vertical jump and were like, okay, let's see, you know, how these guys run. And they basically all skipped that and went over 
to the shuttle drills. And I think only some of them actually did the shuttle drills. So, you know, from a speed standpoint, they don't really have a lot to say uh, other than like, I, you know, athletically doesn't like jump out at you immediately, but just gets open. Uh, did a really good job at the top of his route getting open. So he might be guarded and, and defended early on in the route. But, you know, when it comes to actually catching that football, just finding a way to get that separation to, to sort of lure the defensive back into thinking, OK, this is where the route is going. And just at the last minute, sort of leaning away and, and catching the ball. Really strong hands, just catches the ball effortlessly. Uh, super ball skills. You know, you can see the vision and the ability to catch the ball all in one motion. One of those things where, you know, we talk about the difference between a really true wide receiver and a guy that, you know, kind of fights the ball a little bit or lets the ball get in to his body. Not true with Xavier Jordan. He catches the ball with his hands and always seems to be in the right position to catch the ball. So I was very impressed as well. I was uh, sort of, um, you know, surprised that he was our number one guy. He, he basically was our number one guy on the performance uh, list. And I, I think it was a very good group of receivers. It wasn't quite top end heavy as we thought it was going to be, um, but he definitely led the way in my opinion. There you go. And another guy out there was Ryan Pelham. Forgot to mention up top, USC has offered him, re-offered him and taken a couple of unofficial visits. He was also out there, had a bloody knee by the end. Won a uh, MVP honor or, yeah, MVP honor at the end of that for one of being one of the top wide receivers. He was out there. You know, he's jawing a little bit with the defensive backs. There's a lot of competition going out, out there. Marcus Harris was another guy I talked to after. He had some nice catches, you know, in the skill position drills, but ended up tweaking, uh, I believe he said his hamstring or his leg. After his first one-on-one rep, so couldn't really go the next time. And he's he's right now he's focused on track, so he doesn't really want to jeopardize the rest of his track season. So he pulled out of the one-on-one, so didn't get to see a ton of him in that that competitive uh, setting. But I, I I did think that you know this being my first time seeing, I did think Marcus Harris, you know, nice good-looking kid. He's only a 2025, 2025 has some time to grow and you know he's obviously at modern day so he's going to put up some some numbers out there with that offense. Yeah, I liked him a lot, you know, he caught the ball well, very quick, good short area quickness with him. You know, he's got real good footwork. Uh, the question I think with him and why USC hasn't offered him a scholarship is probably top end speed. You know, that's probably it and that's why he's running track. You know, he's trying to get that top end a little faster. So, you know, he's not a big guy necessarily, so you want to be able to complement and be able to get loose deep. And, um, you know, I thought he looked very good in drills and certainly, you know, in the underneath routes and the shorter routes, he's very quick and he gets separation uh, with that quickness. So I, I thought he, he, he looked pretty good um, overall, just as, as a wide receiver, probably, you know, of the pure wide receivers, maybe uh, second best guy overall, just watching drills. Like you said, didn't do a lot one-on-ones. I think, um, you know, there's, there's, some other guys that you could debate would, would, would be in that conversation. Um, but uh, I, I thought he, he did definitely show out, uh, especially being a 2025 receiver. Another guy who was there who USC fans will remember, Aaron Butler. Aaron Malik Butler, Butler is what he goes by now. Did not work out with the defensive backs. No, he went into the day saying, I'm going to work out with the wide receivers. 
And that has been a staple of his recruitment so far as to show that he wants to play wide receiver. So he was out there. I think he looked a little bit skinnier from the last time I've seen him, but I haven't seen him in a while. So definitely kind of one of the the slimmer wide receivers out there. You know, the hands were a little bit inconsistent at times, but you could definitely tell why he's a high-end prospect. He's twitchy. He He's super athletic. And we, we just think maybe his, his, his future will be on defensive back, but seems to really want to play wide receiver at this point in time. Yeah, and, and catching the ball. I mean, that's an example of the difference between a guy like Jordan who just catches the ball very fluidly and it just all happens in one motion, whereas Butler allowed the ball to get into his body a little more. You know, he was kind of fighting you know, some of his routes a little more. Like you say, super athletic. I mean, build-wise, he's kind of like a, a slimmer Ryan Pelham. You know, Pelham's gotten a little – a little bigger, a little longer, you know, broader shoulders, has a, a little better catch radius, um, but kind of similar in terms of their days, in terms of watching them drills and, and kind of reviewing the film that we got, um, sort of, you know, more similar than I thought they would be uh, as receivers at this point in time. And I do think, you know, with, with Malik Butler, you do wonder, okay, so like how would he have looked in that defensive back group and and really it was a very good defensive back group it was a defensive back group that was kind of like old orange county basically um but nevertheless uh you know you kind of see where it's like not necessarily natural for him right now playing receiver you know the athleticism is there but you know is he a natural receiver and a guy that you know is like six foot 175 pounds you, you know he's not necessarily like super unique in any way in terms of his body. So, you know, he's still definitely got some work to do. And there's still, oh, I think going to be some questions, you know, as to, well, you know, is, is, is the offensive side of the ball really the, the, the best side of the ball for him? Absolutely. And the big boy out of that group was Davon Mitchell. To quote Gerard with uh, Jakima Stewart, has another high butt going on with him, just a big guy. I, we learned that he's actually from Alabama through way of Texas, transferring from Allen, Texas, out to Southern California. Gerard actually uh, might be Gerard's new best friend. He was chatting him up a lot on the sidelines, but just dominated every rep he took in one-on-one. Just nobody could stop him. Just used that big body to his advantage. Showed off some good hands, some some good route running, but just too big for anybody there. He almost seemed bored at times. Uh, taking reps because no one was really giving him a challenge, but definitely came away impressed with Davon Mitchell is bringing to California by way of Texas. Yeah, I mean, you know, he walked in. Uh, you know, we're seeing all these receivers, and it's it's kind of forget like there's tight ends in that group. There was so like two tight ends walking up, and he's getting his picture taken, and I, and I just see the the back of him with the sixty six. I'm going. Is there a lineman that just showed up late? They're just going to take pictures of or something. And then I think it was you that he walked by and he sat on the bench to put on his cleats. And you're like, that's Devon Mitchell. And I go, oh, oh, yeah. Okay. The tight ends. I forgot. And uh, that was sort of like, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, man. Cause I've never seen him uh, in person. You know, I didn't see him at the seven on tournament that you and JP went to. So, um, yeah, big kid, strong. But very athletic, very quick, and does have very good ball skills. I mean, he actually catches the ball quite well. Mm-hmm. And so, 
yeah, you're kind of looking, you know, long term, you're sort of fighting the urge, especially on the West Coast, because you just don't see big kids like that. Like you're thinking, oh, man, what would he look like as an offensive tackle? <laughs> what would he look at like as a defensive tackle? And is he, you know, trying hard to kind of keep the weight off and, and, and you know, fight that inner bubba becoming that kid uh, trying to play tight end? Uh, because you look at, I, I mean, you look at him versus, let's say, a Deuce Robinson. And Deuce is just taller and, and leaner and just looks different. You know, he he looks pretty proportionate. Whereas, you know, with Devon Mitchell, man, you've got these big, you know, the, the lower body, very strong. And, um, you know, immediately you start to kind of project with, with a player like that. And, and But nevertheless, in terms of his performance, was a very good receiver. Like nobody, as you said, could really deal with him on the inside. Um, I would like to see maybe some more guys take a shot at him. Seemed like nobody really wanted to deal with that in the slot. Um, but he caught the ball incredibly well and um, uh, definitely looked really good. From a, a recruiting standpoint, like you said, you know, we were kind of chatting and I was just over there and, you know, he had gotten his picture taken and what have you. And so, you know, I kind of introduced myself and, uh, you know, I said from, from way of Allen, Texas, and he kind of laughed. He goes, but, you know, originally I'm from Alabama. I was actually only in Allen for like a year. I said, oh, wow. OK, he 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 talks like he's been from Southern California, you know, his whole life, which is interesting. Not a, like a lot of Southern drawl or anything. So we were just kind of chatting it up and he was just happy to you know hang out, be there. Already had an invite to the Under Armour game or I, I think the Under Armour uh, Future 50 is is what he had an invite to. Um, and so, you know, he and his dad just came out here from Allen, Texas, uh, came out here just for more exposure. I, I don't know if it was, uh, the, the drubbing that Allen took from St. John Bosco last year at home or what, but, um, you know, Allen high school is, is one of the biggest high schools in the country. I mean, it's got that NFL like stadium. And so, you know, coming out to Southern California to get more exposure is kind of like, okay, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess so. Uh, but um, I think, you know, the pass offense and what uh, Los Alamitos has been able to do here in the recent past, uh, definitely something that, you know, caught his eye. And uh, with P.A. Cunningham coming out, you know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what Los Al looks like next year because they are getting bigger. I mean, that's the one thing we talked about when we were talking about that game against Modern Day in the finals. It's like, you know, Los Al just isn't that team yet. You know, when they went and played American Heritage, it was like, yeah, Los Al's got some great talent, but man, they're just not that team top to bottom that has been through the wars that way, right? They they seem to kind of jump out there and, and, and try to become a national program before they've they've done that locally, like Modern Day has and St. John Bosco has and De La Salle has and even to to a large extent Long Beach Poly has. And so now they're they're getting some beef there, some bigger guys. Now we'll say this. You know, I, I, I talked to Devon quite a bit, and I did get the sense that, you know, USC is not among his favorites right now. I, I, he did admit, you know, he kind of misses being home, and, um, you know, he, he likes the West Coast. He's still acclimating. He hasn't been out here for very long. But, yeah, I don't necessarily get the sense that there's any kind of, like, inherent uh, love for, for USC or, or any West Coast schools. He has been up to campus. He enjoyed it. He liked it. You know, he's definitely still got to get more of a bond with the coaching staff. And we'll see how long he's out here. Just like you said with T.A. Cunningham, you know, we got to see if, if, if he decides to stay out here for two more years. You know, uh, he's a 2025 kid. And so there's plenty of time, 
you know, to, to, to work and to get him back on campus more. But certainly I think there's other schools that, uh, that kind of have already made some impressions on him. And who's to say a big season from Deuce Robinson on the football field won't rekindle some interest for Dave Well, that might, that, might, that might scare him away. I don't know. I mean, Deuce is a, a true freshman. You know, he might feel like, oh, you know, they already got a guy there or what have you. But he, he was aware of, of Deuce Robinson committing there and, um, you know, kind of wanted to see more from the tight end position. And I, I'm sure, you know, that's certainly what he's looking at and um, wants to see, you know, more utilization there uh, from the tight end position. So from that standpoint, you know, I, I think there's a good chance we're definitely going to see more utilization because I think there's going to be a push to get Juice Robinson the football and say, hey, you made the right choice, Deuce. You know, we, <laughs> we're, we're going to make this happen, uh, sort of like you had with Jordan Addison coming over from Pittsburgh and being a Blitnikoff winner and, and you can't have him come over and transfer willing uh, getting a Blitnikoff and then not being a first round pick that's going to hurt you you know being able to try to get transfers in the future so um it's one of those things that you you sort of um pigeonhole yourself sometimes as a coaching staff when you know you 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 really push for guys that uh, you feel can be marquee guys you got to sort of make sure that they become marquee guys because if they're not it, it ends up hurting you a bit on the recruiting trail, not just on the field because that guy didn't produce the way you hoped he produced, but also sort of on the on, on the recruiting trail. And the final three guys we're going to talk about are defensive backs, Dijon Lee, Chuck McDonald, Darius Dixon, two of those guys modern day, and then Dijon Lee, a local kid from Mod- uh, Mission Viejo, excuse me, who we saw at the Rising Stars camp and came away really impressed with, ended up getting an offer down the line. Gerard, to me, looked bigger than from the last time I saw him. Definitely taller. I mean, he yeah. just keeps growing. I and mean, he's legitimately 6'4". As big as Malachi Crawford uh, was in the last class, I think Dijon is a bit taller than him. Not, not quite as big, but a bit taller. And he's 2025, so he's still got another two years ahead of him. And uh, we saw him at uh, the second invite camp that USC had. And you had Dakota Fields there. That was probably the best camp uh, with Jordan Anderson getting that scholarship offer uh, at that point. Now committed to uh, Oregon, the former Milliken receiver that I think is at Newport Harbor now, I think. Um, so that was a good camp with a lot of good young players. Not a lot of uh, upperclassmen, but a, a lot of good young players. And Dejon Lee was like at the top of the list for us. I mean, I think he was maybe the top performer coming away from that camp. And I was surprised that USC let him walk away without a scholarship offer. I think I even said it on the podcast. I said, that, that kid's going to get a scholarship offer. A little bit like, you know, Elijah Rushing <laughs> walking away from campus, not having a scholarship offer. But in Elijah Rushing's situation, the big uh, five-star defensive end from Tucson uh, in the 2024 class, we'll talk about him later, um, with Dijon Lee, he actually camped and looked good. And so it was one of those things. It's like, you know, maybe there's a question mark as to is he really a corner? Uh, or, or is he a safety? You know, he, he kind of played both those positions to some extent at the camp because he played inside against some guys that were tight ends, and then he played outside against some guys that were receivers. And so, you know, he won some, he lost some, but I think, you know, you're looking at a difference maker as a defensive back. You're looking at another guy that has a very unique body that's just totally different. And, you know, uh, you kind of have to look at some of these very tall players now 
And you have to make that consideration with Eric Gentry and where you would say, okay, this guy's got to put on a bunch of weight. He's got to do this. and He's got to do that in order to play said position. And you now you're starting to go, well, maybe not, you know, maybe there's, there's more unicorns out there, but you got to give them a chance and give them a little bit of run. And so John Lee and, and, and Malachi Crawford, um, definitely some, some interesting prospects because they are so tall and they have such a ridiculous uh, defense radius, you know. I mean, Deshaun Lee had a really nice backhand pass deflection. Uh, I think it was against um, uh, Decker, uh, the tight end, uh, that you just can't make unless you're 6'4", and you've got that kind of wingspan. And so he grew up from a recruiting standpoint, a USC fan. Uh, you can tell, you know, family and everybody, I think, would like to keep him close to home. He, he's still more of a regional recruit. You know, his name has yet – to really hit out there. And I think probably this May, you'll see uh, an influx of, of more schools nationally. They'll start recruiting him. And then his recruitment will kind of start. You know, that when you start to get the Ohio States and what have you, and I actually don't know what his scholarship list looks like right now at present date, but I got to feel like he just hasn't quite, you know, gotten, gotten the national um, recognition from a lot of colleges yet and that's going to be sort of the next chapter in his recruitment but i mean think usc uh even though he didn't get that scholarship offer right after the camp definitely made um inroads and, and sort of put their best foot forward and uh they, they probably the team to beat right now you know kind of looks at himself as a local kid and um you know has been up to usc a bunch of times and uh looks forward to going back up there here pretty soon uh to to, to watch the team a little more. And so, um, you know, he, he had a big camp, but you kind of saw it coming, you know, you kind of figured Dijon Lee was, was, was going to look good. I mean, like I said, we saw him at that invite camp last summer and he looked really good. And I think he's just getting more and more confidence now. Oklahoma is his most national offer as long as well as Boston college and a couple PAC 12 offers. Colorado. Yeah, he's the guy that, 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 that LSU will swoop in on uh, Florida mm. will come in. Uh, mark my words, like there's no way that those schools are going to come out here. They're going to go to Bosco and they're not going to go down to Michigan Hill and they're going to see this 6'4", 190 pound guy that can that can legitimately play corner. Um, I know Malachi Crawford didn't get a ton of national looks and what have you. And, you know, maybe some of the feedback is going to be dependent, you know, if, if schools like Ohio State, and Michigan, et cetera, don't necessarily get the sense like he's willing to leave. Maybe that also affects it, but I, I don't think so. I think they're going to look at him and they're going to go, you know, he runs fast enough and he's quick enough um, being that tall that, um, you know, we, we're going to, we're going to make a run at him. And, and he, interestingly enough at that camp, he talked up uh, Taylor Mays and, and having conversations with Taylor Mays and Taylor Mays being obviously a big defensive back in his own right when he played at USC, um, you know, giving him tips on how to get low and play low. And I'm like, yeah, that's, you, you know, that's tough for you, man. I mean, you're, you're taller than everybody. Like you're literally taller than some of these linemen out here. So, you know, getting low and being able to play with some leverage uh, against these, you know, smaller, faster receivers is definitely very difficult. In, in, in those one-on-one -on -one situations, again, it's like, you know, it's not real football. It's a big open field. Uh, but you've got a guy like that that can take up so much space because he's so long. It's like Eric Gentry. You know, you put that guy out in the hash and it's just like you think you've got an open lane. You've got a window to throw the football. And then here comes this condor of a defensive back that just swoops in. It's like, you know, deflects the pass or, or, or is able to deflect it for an interception. And so he's one of those type of guys that um, 
he he's like a force multiplier because he's so long and he has that ability to affect more of the field than you even think. Let's wrap it up with the two modern day guys, Chuck McDonald and Darius Dixon. You guys saw more of the defensive backs than I did, but I know Gerard that you were very high on Chuck McDonald and you recently just saw Darius Dixon as well at best of the West. Yeah. So Chuck McDonald hadn't seen him in since uh, mid season last year. And I got to say, man, he's put on some really good muscle. I mean, he is a guy that he's he's looking like that Aaron Flowers type of sort of hybrid nickel safety type player. And that's what he plays for modern day. He plays mostly over the nickel. Their starters are Xavier Brown on one side and Darius Dixon on the other side. And so he's been playing over the slot and he's definitely built himself into that type of player. We talked about Ryan Pelham and sort of the increase in radius. That he's had, you know, the shoulders have sort of broadened. You know, he's got the longer arms, and he's he's just looking different from a profile standpoint than he did maybe a year or two ago. And that's kind of like with Chuck McDonald. You know, Chuck is babyface Chuck. You know, I remember when we saw him early in the year. He start he's starting to look like a grown ass man now. You know, it's still class of 2025, but I, I liked what I saw from him. You know, he went up against Jordan um, Xavier Jordan a few times, and you know. Xavier was able to make those plays and he was able to make those catches. But I feel like, you know, in a team 11 on 11 type of situation, you put pads on and Chuck McDonald's going to be there. He's going to be competing. And so I just, I don't know, something about his look. I just really like the trajectory physically of where he's come from and where he's going. You know, I think he's got still a lot of physical upside to him. Um, you know, got to continue to do some track and work on his speed and what have you. But that's one of those players that you look at and you see the sort of extinction of the Sam position, you know, that Sam linebacker and the advent of the, the safety that's just big enough to play near the line of scrimmage and play against the RPO, play against the option where you've got, you know, those receivers and those kickout blockers that are on you. And um, I, I think he's one of those guys that can definitely play those hash marks and, and be a really good player, you know, kind of nonchalant. Right now, about USC and the interest, I think USC is really the school he he knows the best, and so he's kind of looking around and like, you know, hey, I'm 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 not gonna jump on anything right now. And he got that scholarship offer from USC at the Rising Stars camp. He was the guy that um, initially, I think, with Jelani Davis, the other uh, modern day safety, uh, was the guy that got a scholarship offer right after the camp. So he has a very good relationship with Dante Williams. He has a good relationship with USC, uh, but he's feels like he's got to see more to compare it to USC. And with Darius Dixon, another guy that, you know, physically, you know, modern day's not messing around, man. I mean, they've got a very professional run offseason program, and Darius has gotten bigger, and He's just gotten bigger. He's, he's getting close to 6'2 now. Like, just the height-wise, he's getting a lot bigger and filling out a lot more. And um, he was as good as anybody. And you know what? He played really well at passing down best of the West the, the, the week before, or excuse me, the day before. He was playing against Philip Bell. He was kind of shadowing Philip Bell a lot. Uh, he was playing for Ground Zero, and uh, Philip Bell was playing for DB Select, the, the Sacramento team. And um, you know, Terrius did a very good job on Philip Bell. Philip Bell is one of the top wide receivers in the 2025 class. So you know, you look at that modern day defensive backfield, and they basically all have USC scholarship offers at this point. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean. You know, Xavier Brown, we'll see what happens with him in USC. You know, I think USC's still in it, but it feels like they've faded a little bit with him and they need to get him back on campus and they need 
you know, sort of that 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 last push um, to, to to try to close with him. But you got Darius Dixon there, and man, he, dude, he, he's a guy as well. He's a, he's a very good player, and it's um, it there's a lot of very good 2025 defensive backs. That class uh, as a whole is um is just a heck of a class, and uh, you know, Browns the, the year before he's 2024. If you miss out on him. You know, that 25 class at, at modern day is just stacked. Stacked indeed. And as we mentioned, the uh, wide receiver defensive back unit or grouping for Under Armour was stacked. And a lot of great guys that we got to see. And, you know, it's always nice to to put names to faces and meet some guys for the first time on the recruiting trail after, you know, talking to them on DMs or phone calls or whatever, just to get them out there. And Under Armour is one of the big camps we like to do. Gerard, I think we should take our break now because we've been going at it for a minute. Plus, with the shotgun guest appearance, it's been a very long first half for listeners. So I think we should take our break now. When we come back, we'll talk about the best of the West and some quick hitter notes and then do some listener questions. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. How's the second break, Gerard? The second break. <laughs> it was the second break for our listeners. It seems like, uh, you know, maybe uh, we need to give them a little bit of a rest and then we get back after it because we have passing down best of the West to talk about now. We get after it. We get after it. Yes, passing down best of the West. We were out at another seven on seven event. FSP was out there as well. But there were some other guys to check out. We mainly came initially for one Jason Brown, who made another unofficial visit to USC. He was out there. FSP was out there with some of their guys. But there was some local guys out there that uh, Gerard got to to check out and and talk to. Yeah, I mean, we could definitely follow up with Jason Brown because that's uh, pretty significant. You know, USC being able to get him back on campus, getting the whole – FSP squad back on campus, which is pretty big because in previous years, it's usually just an annual thing. <laughs> they usually don't get that group uh, on campus multiple times. So that's uh, a big deal for USC being able to get Jason Brown back on campus. And I know you spoke to him and put the update already on the site. Uh, but for myself, I talked to Philip Bell, talked to John Davis, talked to Caden Dixon Watts, who's uh, the 2026 wide receiver for modern day, a guy that's already got like a dozen scholarship offers already. USC 
has yet to offer. But I mean, he just uh, he looks like a young Jody Lewis, uh, the former wide receiver uh, from Hawkins School. That was a five star that signed with USC. Um, kind of has that body style as a youngster, uh, about you know six one six two at this point, probably one seventy five, getting close to one eighty, and just um, very smooth, very athletic. You know, he's still kind of figuring out in the wide receiver position to some extent. I mean, he's uh, you know basically a freshman. They also had another freshman out there, Jaden Crowder, who played for Ground Zero, and um, he's a safety that's got seven offers already. Uh, some big time schools like Texas A&M coming in after him um, doesn't uh, uh, quite uh, have uh, the, the whole Pac-12 yet, but is working towards it, you know, as a safety, just a freshman. And you talk about that group at modern day and the 2024, 2025, and now the 2026, um, that's a, a pretty loaded group that USC just doesn't have to go very far to recruit. You know, I mean, if they can lock down modern day and Bosco, for the next, uh, you know, few years, they're, they're going to do all right recruiting wise. You know, those schools are doing a good job stocking uh, their various positions, including the lines uh, with good players that, um, you know, USC is going to be able to uh, but to build that fence, you know, and, and really just cherry pick some players. But I think, you know, recruiting wise out of that group, because with Caden Dixon Watts and Jaden Crowder, it's very early for them. Um, this is, you know, just the sort of introductory uh, introduction period for recruiting uh, for those guys uh, with Jelani Davis. You know, he got that scholarship offer from USC over the summer. I, I don't get the sense that USC is pushing really hard and recruiting him the hardest right now. Um, he, he loves USC. He's a local guy. Um, but I think he's always been a guy that feels like he's got to go outside the state to kind of show his worth, if you will, like, Oh yeah, you know, a bunch of modern day guys go to USC. I'm going to be the kid that goes to LSU. I'm going to be the kid that goes to, you know, Oklahoma or, or wherever. So um, didn't get to feel like USC was um, at the top of his favorite list right now. Uh, with Philip Bell, it's the opposite. I think Philip Bell definitely feeling USC. I think there was a crystal ball somewhere along the line uh, of somebody thinking, you know, uh, Philip Bell to USC. It's 2025, so it's early for him. And he just came off a, a really good visit to Ohio State. You know, and Ohio State recruits the receiver position incredibly well. So there's definitely competition there. And I think the thing that works for USC is that his mom is kind of pushing USC. She likes that it's local. She likes the academics. Um, I think there's some family that are USC fans. Uh, and then you have that sort of synergy with the fact that Philip Bell really loves Lincoln Riley and Lincoln Riley offenses. He, he grew up an Oklahoma fan because of their offenses. And now Lincoln Riley's at USC. So that definitely helps USC in that regard. But again, a guy that's got all the offers in the world and he's taken a ton of visits. Like Philip Bell is well ahead of the curve when it comes to just the exposure and, and getting to build relationships with colleges. You know, he's got Texas and Oregon, um, Alabama, uh, I mean, he's going back to Texas again. I think, he, you know, he's just at Ohio State, Michigan, all these schools. He's already seen them. So he's well ahead of, of, of the, the exposure and, the you know, just trying to acclimate and get a feel for what all these different colleges all over the place have to offer. Um, so that's going to be an interesting recruitment. Total flanker, total guy that's, you know, got the speed, uh, about six foot six one. 
So he's got, you know, decent size with him. And uh, it was really fun to watch him go one-on-one against uh, Darius Dixon. And I, I thought Darius Dixon played extremely well in, in that matchup. I mean, he definitely um, did some good things uh, against Philip Bell. So uh, that's uh, going to be one that we watch uh, going on in the future. Maybe um, kind of a little bit of a rivalry there, you know. Uh, I think that, uh, uh, you know, with Bell, he actually played some safety as well for that team uh, too. So that was kind of interesting. Didn't get to see – him a lot, you know, playing safety, didn't focus too much on him, but I have film of him from passing down uh, earlier in the year when he was playing with Trillion Boys, and I have, you know, those clips from last Saturday, so I'll put up something with him here, uh, probably a little bit of a, a compilation of sorts, and, um, you know, when I get out of this neck deep uh, <laughs> flood of, of video clips video. that I have from the past you know, few weeks, you know, I mean, I still got a bunch of Jason Brown stuff that I got to put together from uh, the earlier super tournament. And then really that was going down to passing down the focus film wise. And then, you know, ground zero showed up with a bunch of guys and Philip Bell shows up. So it's like, Oh, okay. We're going to, we're going to have to take a little more video of a little more guys than I thought. Right. And I did get to talk to Jason Brown, as you mentioned, and yeah, he just visited USC a couple weeks ago back on campus once again you know sometimes that happens where they're back in town but they don't always go visit the school they just went to but jason brown fsp wanted to go back again he just wanted to see if the vibe was different this visit was more about getting to see what campus life is about moving around campus seeing all that the first one was more in-depth with the coaches so got best of both worlds in these last two visits usc has definitely uh, turned up the recruiting heat for him Safe to say he's one of their top running back options that they're looking at. Will that end up with him being a Trojan? We'll have to see. You know, obviously he he is passionate about filmmaking and stuff. I'll have more about that in the war room. But USC, you know, you can't beat the film school. So that is going to be tough to beat if USC, you know, presses for a commitment and they're on the same page there. But Jason Brown, definitely interested in the Trojans. He's still, you know, up in the air in terms of recruiting timeline. Does not sound like he's going to take official visits anytime soon. Maybe wait him out to the season. Doesn't feel the rush to make a commitment before the season. Just kind of feeling it out. And I wonder how that'll affect with Kyle McDonald's timeline because it seems like he likes to get his commitments and his ducks in a row going into the year. So we'll see how those kind of two styles meet going forward with it with uh brown's recruitment but he was to interject real quick chris how yeah. does he stack up with quentin joiner uh kind of stature wise he's kind of he, he's kind of sought off a little bit like quentin joiner um kind of i was thinking about that in just terms of body types and you know what uh kyle mcdonald's looking for you know with the, with the bigger back smaller back it's like bigger back, smaller back, but it's not thunder and lightning. It's just, it's it's bigger back and shorter back. That's still big. right. <laughs> right. He is a little bit sawed off. I would say, excuse me. I would say Quinn Joyner is a little bit bigger, not by much, but I would say he's a little bit bigger. I would say they're probably the same amount of like thickness, you know, kind of muscles bulking out. I would say Quinn Joyner, yeah, the bigger one of the two, but very similar. So I think that's a good. You know, if you're saying, you know, Brian Jackson, who we're going to talk about maybe more of that, that thunder, like a Marion Peterson, you know, trying to find that that lightning, that other lightning compliment that that Quentin Joyner, Jason Brown would definitely be in that category of the uh, 
the lightning, not the thunder. Yeah, it's thunder and, um, you know, a little, little less loud thunder. I don't know. I, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not certainly Lindell White, Reg Bush, you know, it's right. not uh, a, a real sort of contrast of styles where, you know, Raleigh Brown is like a certain type of player that's really fast and dynamic, but not necessarily super physical guy. And then you're pairing him with uh, a running back that's, you know, sort of a downhill runner. It, the one thing it's important to just point out about all of these running backs that Kyle McDonald's looking at, they are like 200 pounds plus, you know. And even though Jason Brown, he's diminutive, he's not a small guy, you know, yeah. he's definitely got power. And he is a kind of every down back at O'Day High School up there in Seattle, former uh, high school of uh, Taylor Mays, Taylor Mays, second name drop of Taylor Mays in the, in the podcast. This is a there you go. Podcast. Um, but a, a guy that, you know, is definitely a sort of every down back, really, you know, not like Nate Frazier. You know, Nate Frazier is sort of the complement to Jordan Davidson. He is the changeup to Jordan Davidson. He is the lightning to Jordan Davidson. Whereas, you know, Jason Brown is like not as big as Jordan Davidson, but kind of gives you some of the same things that Jordan Davidson does, just in a smaller package and, and probably a little faster and a little quicker. But not necessarily a guy you look at and say, okay, well, you know, it's third and 12, it's third and 15. So we're going to put him in now because he's sort of our receiving threat. He's our guy we like to get in his face. And he's a guy that is first and 10. You need to give him the football. Can we do like thunder and like rolling thunder? Is that a something, thing? Something of that nature. Yeah. It's not, it can't be thunder and lightning. It has to be, I was going to say like thunder and a rock slide or something, but I, I could, I couldn't <laughs> think of anything weather wise. Maybe going. rolling thunder can be our uh, our uh, holding until we think of something better. I thunder that, and rolling we, just, thunder. we just have to do our meteorology research, and then we'll figure out the different types of thunder. I'm sure someone will send it to us. I, I I'm absolutely confident somebody will send us the right answer or the right thing to to do moving forward with thunder and lightning or. Thunder and less thunder. So someone will we, definitely we get us. We live in up. Southern California, where you never really get much lightning or thunder. So um, even though it's rained here a lot more <laughs> in the past six months, uh, we're just not a lot of thunder and lightning. Now, and you live out there in Long Beach, where you actually get some of those uh, those uh, water um, spouts that sometimes come off the ocean. Uh, but nevertheless, still not a lot of thunder, not a lot of lightning. Speaking of that thunder, that plays well into our next segment, which is McKinney, Texas running back Brian Jackson had an interesting tweet uh, last couple of days. I, I believe it was yesterday or possibly Monday. I'm not quite sure. But he tweeted out a 421. He had a dot, 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 421. Doesn't really say what that is. Doesn't really follow up with it. I'm assuming that's going to be a potential commitment date. You know, we heard maybe that it was winding down for him, his process. He's supposed to be taking a visit for the holy hour. So maybe the 21st, maybe significance, parent birthday, his birthday, whatever. It seems like Brian Jackson maybe is setting up to put a, the finishing touches on his commitment, which we still feel really good for the Trojans in. Yeah, I mean, we'll wait and see. <laughs> at this point, you're trying to get a hold of him, get some follow-up, and, and see if uh, he's at that point of, of ready to make a decision. And, you know, clearly USC could be at a point where they've got two in Texas early on. You know, if you're looking at Aaron Flowers, 
making an announcement this week. So interesting, you know, it's um, going into Texas and particularly that DFW area, you know, Dallas, Fort Worth. And that's kind of sort of the area in you know, a Forney and McKinney are, are, are both uh, that area. Um, Ronald Jones was uh, the last player out of that area that USC plucked out. Uh, he went to North McKinney, if I recall. So he didn't go to McKinney High School. Um, but USC recruiting that area uh, very hard. And, and one thing that's interesting is, you know, give a shout out to Kyle McDonald because from what I've heard, he's kind of been the primary recruiter, or I should say the initial recruiter in a lot of these situations. You know, he went out there uh, during the evaluation period in uh, January and was kind of the lead guy on some of these players. Whether it was running backs or not, it was just territorial recruitment. And because coming from Utah, he'd recruited Texas very hard. He has good, a lot of good relationships um, in that in that sort of Dallas-Fort Worth area. So even though, you know, in, in, in the case of like Aaron Flowers, uh, where, of course, you, you know, Alex Chris getting involved as a safety coach and Dante Williams as a cornerbacks coach. Uh, initially, is Kyle McDonald that was there um, kind of breaking the ice with him as a recruit. And that will play well into the next section. As I mentioned, the Brian Jackson is scheduled to go on the Holy Hour visit, as we know, that is coming up this weekend. But there's a couple of uh, cancellations that are going on with the Holy Holy Hour, as we're calling it, Holy Hour Holdouts, and they're both offensive linemen. As of right now, Mike Williams, the Baltimore area offensive tackle, three-star offensive tackle, who I reached out to early this week, told me that he is not making it out for his trip this weekend. And, you know, he has a relationship with Sam Green when they played together at St. Francis, so he was really excited to come out here chat up with Sam, get a feel for USC, but that is no longer happening. I'm still following up to see if his teammate, three-star uh, edge rusher Obina uh, Okungwa, I believe that's how I said it. I am very bad with names on this po- podcast, but Obina, three-star edge rusher from Flowers as well. He put USC in his top seven, and he was also excited to come out the visit. They were going to come together, so I'm still following up, see if Obina is still going to make it out. And then the other one is Andrew Sprague, the uh, Colorado, Missouri, sorry, Missouri offensive tackle who USC was in his top schools list, took a recent visit to Michigan. Michigan picked up a crystal ball, and now Sprague is making his commitment on April 7th, the Friday, right before the holy hour. We can say to assume that uh, he is not going to be making out to his uh, holy hour trip for the Trojans with a commitment coming on Friday. So two offensive linemen are out for the holy hour. And it happens that fast. You know, guys take unofficial visits and, um, you know, they're ready to shut it down. You know, they feel like uh, they, the, the, the sort of comfort level and, you know, a lot of kids talk about just, you know, I, I, I got to feel like I'm at home. I, I have to feel that, that feeling. And, you know, whether that means that the recruitment is completely shut down or it's shut down for now, and then we see what happens during the season, you know, remains to be seen. But yeah, some 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 big time visitors possibly not making it uh, to the April 8th, you know, the big uh, weekend that USC looked like they were having. Um, still checking in on some other players, but you know, this happens. It's one of those things where, you know, sometimes it's, if it's not an official visit weekend, and even with those, sometimes you, you get, you know, guys that 
are on the list and then they're off the list and sometimes they're back on the list. Uh, it goes all over the place. But with unofficial visits, when, uh, you know, the school is not paying their way and, and you don't have that communication with here's your flight, this is when you get here, et cetera, and you're in control of that itinerary, it makes it harder to get those kids actually on campus. But I mean, this weekend, weather's supposed to be awesome. Um, I'm sure uh, they, uh, they, we've kind of already talked about this a little bit in the war room, um, some of the things that they have planned. Um, it's definitely going to be a big weekend, you know, in, in terms of uh, the red carpet and what have you. Um, it's just going to be a question of like who actually shows up and, you know, uh, you know, how much impact does the weekend have uh, overall in the recruiting class? Because, you know, it, it looked at from a distance like this is going to be a, a big weekend for them. And this is going to be, you know, for some of these kids, attraction visit weekend, but something that kind of sets them up for an official visit during the summer that could be, you know, the, the weekend that they actually close with some guys. And so we'll see, again, who, who, who actually makes it, who doesn't, visits that fall through. I mean, um, you know, we've had uh, King Joseph Edwards, uh, visit, you know, on, on schedule to visit USC like three times now, and they've been canceled every time. It's just one of the things, unofficial visits, it's a little bit of a different animal, um, getting kids on campus than the official visits. And we did mention in the war room that I think we can mention now is that the official name of this weekend is not actually the holy hour, as we have dubbed on this podcast. It's, it's not. Called. What? What is this? You know, it, it seems that they don't listen to this podcast because we yeah. thought holy hour was pretty clever, you know, with it being Easter weekend and a play on the golden hour from last year. You see how that goes together. But it's actually going to be called the baller bash. And I don't know, do we like that better or worse? I mean, of course, we're biased because we uh, – we, we <laughs> Are the inventors of the – yeah. Yeah, the shirts are already being made and pressed and uh, the bumper stickers. So uh, we're going to stick with Holy Hour. Fair enough. We're going to stick with the Holy Hour. And moving on to that, we got the time to talk about some spring misses. Just a couple of quick hitter notes. You know, one of them being Elijah Rushing, the five-star – edge rusher out of Arizona, not having any uh, USC visits slated coming up. And then Dylan Williams, the former USC linebacker committed 2024, as we mentioned earlier in the show, did not show up at Under Armour, but he did put out a top seven and no USC. So USC with some spring swinging and misses so far early in, or the middle of spring. Yeah, I don't know if they really swung for Elijah Rushing, to be honest with you. I mean, that was one of those odd ones where we were at the Under Armour camp last year, and he just showed out, and it was like one of those guys you're like, yeah, I mean, USC, got to cut off for him a scholarship. They can't let him get off campus without a scholarship, but lo and behold, that's what happened. And maybe, you know, it's just an evaluation point. Maybe they just didn't like what they saw from him. but. Um, coming from, uh, I think, the same high school as uh, B. John Robinson, you know, physically just looking like one of those uh, really true good pass rushers uh, coming out of the 2024 class. USC just never seemed like they were among that group of top schools. And he's already got his officials uh, starting to get sorted out. Tennessee, Notre Dame, Oregon, uh, going to get official visits. Um, Ohio State, Michigan, LSU, a couple other schools pushing and it just doesn't seem like USC's going to be involved seriously with him. So, you know, front seven, you want to continue to get those top players, um, defensive linemen, particularly 
he's more of an edge guy, and USC's pretty good with edge guys right now. But still, you know, he could end up being a guy that's uh, you know 265, 270 by the time he gets on college campuses, and you know, he could be a guy that plays um, with his hand down for you. So interesting that you know USC just has never really been uh, a serious contender for his recruitment. And then Dylan Williams, you know, kind of a kick in the nuts for USC <laughs> not being in that top seven. You know, that's uh, a little surprising and, and certainly, you know, kind of par for the course, though, because I think he's definitely leaning towards Oregon. And I think that's probably been a push for Oregon, just like, hey, we don't want USC there. You know, like USC doesn't want Oregon in there and Oregon doesn't want USC in there. And, um, you know, from being a guy that 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 walked the walk and looked like a solid commit to, you know, not even a year later, not having USC in his top seven is just mind boggling. It's it's pretty strange. And of course, there's tons of message board copium going around. Uh, they're smuggling it from message board to message board. And it's on the Trojan message board right now. And a lot of people saying, ah, USC doesn't need Dylan Williams. He's not that good anyways. So on and so forth. Um, Kingston Valeamuasa just took a recent unofficial visit to USC and had a nice picture of like the whole coaching staff with them. Hey, listen, we like uh, Asa a lot, you know, and, and Chris has seen him more than I've seen him. But, you know, people at Bosco are saying he could be one of the best players to ever come out of St. John Bosco, like period. Like they've been saying that the past couple of years and he had the ACL and, and is still kind of trying to get back to 100 percent from that knee surgery. Uh, but a guy that, you know, people have high up hopes for at a program that's produced a lot of really, really good players. So, yeah, you know, that's that's an option there. But I just don't think you can necessarily dismiss, you know, not being able to have uh, one of the top players locally at a school like Long Beach Poly. And he's a good player, man. Dylan Williams is a very good player. You, you've seen plenty of those guys, both of those players. They're, they're different players, in my opinion. They're, they're, they're not quite the same player from what I've seen. But, I mean, go ahead and take that, Chris. Go ahead. Is, is, you know, Dylan Williams not having in USC in the top seven, is that just like fine and dandy and no big deal and, you know, um, nothing to see here? Or or do you feel like, you know, for a school that's struggling on the defensive side of the ball, particularly in the front seven, you never want to have those local players not considering you, you know, at this point in the year. Like, I mean, geez, you know, if we're later in the year and he's close to making a decision and USC is just not that school, okay, whatever. But kind of seems at this point, before we even get to the point of official visits, um, it's a little shot over the bow, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely a shot over the bow. And I see it from a multitude of ways. You're right, they are different. But I think it's not all fine and dandy. And I'll start with that point first. I don't think it's fine and dandy because that's Long Beach Poly. That is a historically football factory. You know, that is a USC pipeline school. And Oregon is really weaseled their way in there and they are making inroads for all their top guys with the with the connections they have on the Oregon staff and with the poly uh, high school so it's not good from a USC perspective but I also think that you have a lot more confidence in Brian Odom as a recruiter to go out and get some really good linebackers as as we mentioned you know they're they're recruiting Kingston very very hard and you know Ohio State is, is always going to be looming but they've they've served it seem to really turn on the heat for him and making them kind of their priority. Not Maybe not quite the same as uh, Tackett Curtis they did uh, going all in for him, but I think you feel a little bit more comfortable about USC being able to be okay in recruiting linebackers moving forward after 
landing attack occurs. You know, you did get kind of a Braylon Shelby, who we think is a really, really good edge guy and maybe can play a little linebacker. So I think you're more confident with that. But I think what sucks for a USC fan is that, as you mentioned, they are very much different players. And there was room for both of them to be in this class together. And you would have been ecstatic of having Dylan Williams and Kingston, the two best linebackers in Southern California, and two guys you could see on the field together playing for USC's defense. And I think that's what sucks the most if you're a USC fan is – not being a not being in contention for both of these players because there's room for both of them on this team. There's room for both of them in the class. And you want playmakers. USC needs playmakers on this defense and they need more of it. And that's something that's been an offseason thing. And you know, you're getting them through the portal. You got some more guys in the recruiting class, but you still need more. You need physical guys like Dylan Williams. You need a guy who's going to take your head off like Kingston and you had one in Tackett. And as you move to big 10 play, these are the guys you need. And those are the guys that are in your backyard. And I think that's overall, I think it is not great that you're not able to be in contention for both of these guys and be in a position to have both of them in your 2024 class. Yeah. I, I don't see an either or with these two, you mm-hmm. know, like they're the exact same player and it's like, Hey, yeah, we like that guy too, but this guy's better and he's the same player, but he's just better. You know, I, I think they are very different players. And, and just looking at the target list, I mean, there's some interesting options that are that are still out there. We talked about Naki uh, earlier. I think he's a little bit more like uh, Veliamuasa uh, mm-hmm. from, from a build standpoint. Um, you know, Ty Anthony Smith has been out here for an unofficial visit and uh, might be back. Uh, here for for this weekend We're, we don't have confirmation of that yet but he's 6'1 205 you know he's kind of a, a smallish will linebacker um a, a little smaller than dylan williams but you know still some, kind of that athletic weak side sort of inside linebacker gabriel williams is a guy that was out here um last year and he took an unofficial visit to usc 6'4 190 potentially maybe more of an edge type player and that's the one thing I, I, I look with Kingston, because Kingston's a legit almost 6'3". You know, he's 225, could be pushing 230 this year. It's like, you know, is he a Mike linebacker or a Will linebacker, or is he a guy that, you know, ends up growing into being a little more of an edge? So there's those type of players as well. You know, Colin Simmons is a guy that's an edge, but, you know, he's about 6'3", 225 from Duncanville High School, a five-star, a great player. Uh, a guy that um, is going to, you know, unofficially visit USC has actually been on the docket to unofficially visit USC a couple times now. So again, kind of hold your breath a little bit with that. You don't necessarily say, you know, that's a that's a done deal. That's going to happen for sure. Uh, but certainly, yeah, I, I think um, you don't like to see those guys slip away. Uh, certainly, this early in the process, and um, you know, try to. Uh, to rationalize it as, uh, well, we don't need him anyways. And we want guys who want to be Trojans. And that's very Clay Helton era talk, you know. And USC is not at the point yet where I think they're going to go into Texas or they're going to go into the DMV and be able to get guys, lock them up early in the recruiting process and just forget about them. You know, this is going to be one of those years where they've got to turn things around a bit on defense, particularly. And, um, and and continue to win 11, 12 games to be able to get to that point where it's like you feel comfortable 
um, as a coaching staff and as a Trojan fan that they can get those guys out of state early on and lock them down. Uh, I think uh, even going back to the Pete Carroll era, there were guys where you were nervous if you're a Trojan fan. Like, we got an early commitment from a guy from South Carolina, Alshon Jeffries, and trust me, as good as USC was at producing wide receivers, as, as good as the offenses had been, as good as USC had been, talking like multiple national championships, playing for number one year in and year out, there was still some puckered buttholes with getting an early, you know, like March commitment from some kid from South Carolina because USC just hadn't recruited South Carolina very much. And it's like, okay, that's going to be a tough one. That's going to be one of those ones that's going to go in to signing day. And guess what happened? It came down to signing day. And, you know, all kinds of things got offered. And he ended up in South Carolina, even though, you know, USC was at top of the college football world. So, yeah, it's uh, one of those things that uh, we'll, we'll see going forward how this shakes out and, you know, how, how they're able to recruit, uh, you know, before the season. And, and as has been pointed out, you know, by – some guys that uh, uh, they, they want to see something more from USC defensively, but some of those recruits are also looking to make summertime decisions. So you got a guy like Marcellus Williams, who's you know got a brother on the team and he wants to see some development and he wants to see the defense you know play more competitively and, and, and not have these games where they're just going back and forth and USC is trying to outscore the other team um, and, and not actually stop anybody. Uh, that's going to be interesting. Uh, if you're you know, making a commitment before the season even starts, you know, you, it, it's basically one of those things, though, I think with some players, you know, the early commitments, you kind of take them with a grain of salt. You know, it's, it's, it's a mixed bag right now. And I think that with NIL, that sort of variable that's um, a part of all of this, you know, it's definitely going to change some things up as we go along. We saw it last year where guys were locked in. And everybody's committing before the season. Senior year's coming up. I just want to focus on my senior year coach. And then, you know, there's a coaching change or there's some NIL, something that comes up. And all of a sudden, some guy that was solidly committed, uh, all of a sudden, bebops over to another school or two. So, yeah, we, we, we kind of have to, um, to, to take a deep breath and say, okay, yes, you know, this is important right now, getting guys on campus, you know, the big summer visit. You know, the, the, that's going to be very big in building the class. But it's only going to be build, big in building the class as USC can kind of like follow up with it, right? Like they did last year. USC would have turned around and only won six or seven games last year. You know, Deuce Robinson and some of those guys probably – you don't even get to this point with Deuce Robinson. You know, he commits to Georgia. He's like, eh, I'm going to commit to Georgia. I'm not even going to, to, to consider USC down the stretch. But USC was able offensively to do enough and, and win 11 games and show like, hey, you know, we're turning this thing around. We're turning it around quick. You know, some guys like that, uh, they, they they didn't have to sort of second guess themselves about you know what the coaching staff was selling. So that much you need now on the defensive side of the ball. And if they're able to get that, then yeah, USC is going to be they're going to be there competing for national championships. Gerard, it is that time of the show where we turn it over to the listeners to ask us some questions. Just a reminder, if you want to email us a question, you can email us at podcast.uscfootball.com. Just make sure you put the composite, 10K, Hurricane, Cilantro Boys, Two Star. Just just put something in the subhead header so it'll go to my inbox and I'll put it for the show. We don't have a ton of questions, but we do have a few questions, Gerard. 
Are you ready to knock out some listener questions? I'm ready for the listeners to give us some direction, Chris. Let's do it. First question is for you, Gerard. Comes from Nick. Hey, Gerard. I remember Tyjon Lindsay being hyped up as a game changer slot receiver like Relique Brown coming out of high school. How would you compare those two players? What are some of the attributes you see in Relique that might elevate him in that slot receiver role? Thanks, Nick. I don't remember ever Tyjon playing running back, first and foremost. So Relique Brown, legitimate running back at modern day high school, uh, was a game changer for them as a running back. Whereas Tejon Lindsay was always sort of a slot receiver, a guy that, you know, did get the ball a bit on end arounds and certain things. But I, I mean, never a guy that was kind of uh, a between the tackles runner like Raleigh Brown was at modern day. I mean, surprisingly so. He's not a big guy. He's, he's bigger than Tejon Lindsay. Tejon Lindsay uh, was always built like a slot receiver, whereas Raleigh Brown, uh, he, he's small, he's diminutive. But he's got the lower body, and he's got enough of a build where you go, yeah, he's probably a running back. You wouldn't confuse him, you know, from a position standpoint, just looking at him physically. Uh, so I think from that standpoint, they're, they're definitely different. In terms of the receiving skills and uh, quickness in space, uh, I think Malik, again, more of a running back, whereas Tajon uh, was very good uh, with the ball in his hands. He's very comfortable in space, very good route runner. I think with Malik, that's probably the, the the one thing that he has to expand is running different routes, uh, understanding the route tree a little bit, and you know whether he's going to be a true wide receiver in the offense or whether he's going to be more of like a Tyreek Hill, where you know you use him in certain ways and, and you set him up. You know you're you're almost calling plays knowing all along in your script, like this is all about trying to get the ball to Relique Brown here, <laughs> right? Like, okay, these plays, you know, hopefully we get some yards. Hopefully we do some stuff here and we get to, you know, stay on the field all to set up this play for Relique Brown. Cause we know this is our scoring play. We know if we get him the ball here and we get this misdirection, we, you know, we run him on motion and we're able to get like a comeback screen to him or whatever it is. It's all kind of set up for him. Whereas Tyjon Lindsay, I think throughout his career in college has just kind of sort of been a slot receiver, you know, a guy that um, smaller, you don't really target him too much, mainly because he's just not a big guy. You don't want him to take a bunch of hits. Really Brown can take more hits. So I, I do think we are going to see him expand upon his receiving skills. And he is a very good receiver, very, very fluid uh, in, in how he catches the ball. Uh, but I think there's still going to be, plenty of opportunities and, and it's going to be within the offense to get him the ball as a runner as well because he has that ability he has the physicality and you're not really worried about him taking too many hits I, I, you know even with anthony thomas going back to him as a running back he was not built exactly like a running back he really was built more like a cornerback which is where a lot of people projected him uh out of high school and it was sort of kind of towards the end of his recruitment, people got into his ear and said, oh, no, no, you need to be a running back. You need to be a running back. And USC had to kind of pivot with that too uh, while Oregon was pitching running back. And a lot of people at the same time, it was like, and I remember, you know, Keyshawn Johnson had this opinion. He's like, dude, you're going to get destroyed as a running back. Like you don't have the body to be a running back. You're just not big enough. And the thing was, 
D'Anthony Thomas was very physical as a runner. And it's like he just didn't realize that he was only 170 pounds. Like, he just wasn't. He was 5'9", probably 165 pounds. And I'd seen him just run some dudes over, like straight up, put his head down. He went uh, head-to-head against uh, Deion Bailey. And uh, it was Lakewood playing against Crenshaw early, non-lead. And they had a collision at the at the goal line, which I, I think Dion uh, Bailey got knocked out of the game with that. He got a concussion, and they took him out of the game. He actually got you know, taken to the hospital uh, from that play, if, if I recall correctly. And that was DeAnthony Thomas. I mean, he was kind of reckless as a runner that way. And you're like, dude, if you do that in college, you're going to the hospital. You're, you're not going to make it. And so – you know, that was kind of the feel with him, like, okay. And when he was at Oregon, I mean, they, they did well with him. He, he was good at Oregon. He wasn't super productive at Oregon. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, Anthony Thomas. He never got to Reggie Bush status because they just couldn't use him like that. You know, Reggie was six foot, 185 pounds coming out of high school. And so, you know, he wasn't a guy that was an inside the tackles type of runner, but he still had enough physicality that even if he took a couple hits, it's like, okay, you know, he can, he can do that. We don't want him to take a bunch of hits, but he can take some hits. Early Brown's the same way. He can take some hits. Like I said, in modern day, senior year, Greg Biggins and I were talking about this when we were laughing. It's like, yeah, they use Relief Brown inside the tackles more than they run him outside. And I don't know why they did that, but they literally, they ran him a lot inside the tackles. He was kind of a power runner for them to some extent. So he brings that to the table. Tajon Lindsay's just never that guy. Like he, they, he was never used that way. Nobody was ever going to use him that way. Uh, he was always a guy that you want to just get the ball in space. You want to get him on screens. You want to get him on dink dunks. Get him in open space and let him juke some people and whatnot. Uh, whereas you know, really Brown has that aspect, but you can also hand the ball off to him, and and it doesn't matter if it's an A gap or if it's in the C gap. Um, he can make a play. He, he can he can juke somebody. He can break a tackle, uh, and he can uh, go yard with his speed. Our next question comes from Travis from Naptown. USC is is USC still recruiting TA Cunningham and Aiden Breland? I don't hear anything about either of those guys visiting campus. Well, we already talked about TA Cunningham at the start of the show, so excellent timing from Travis in asking this question. And I believe we also talked about Aiden Breland uh, last episode, where you know there's some question of maybe how much does he love football? What's going on there? I would say they're kind of on the same level of USC, you know, is around. Technically, they have offers from USC, but not exactly turning up the heat for either of those guys right now. And we'll see how the things change as they go into their senior years. But I feel like those guys are kind of on the same plane for USC in terms of recruiting. Yeah, I think with Aiden Breland, he's just not super into the recruiting process or football. Uh, him taking not taking visits, it's it's not like he's taking visits to other schools like T.A. Cunningham is. T.A. Cunningham's going to Colorado and Texas and Texas A&M, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, he's out there. He's just not at USC a whole lot. Aiden Breland is not anywhere a whole lot. He's at home. And so that's, you know, some of the question of, you know, like, is he, is he really into football? Do you like football? Um, I, I think, you know, uh, there's some people still trying to figure that out, you know. and and so. Uh, a guy that's um, interesting, you know, he's, he's been on the radar for, for quite a long time. He's had a bunch of offers for quite a long time, but yeah, not been at USC very often. I mean, for a guy that had a, a scholarship offer as a freshman, uh, in fact, I think it was in his eighth grade going into his freshman year, he had a scholarship offer from USC. Um, 
man, I don't think he's been on USC's campus more than maybe three times. So, but again, it, I don't think that's just you. It's not like, you know, but he's been to Oregon eight times or, you know, he's been to Texas three times and he's been to UCLA five times. He hasn't really been anywhere a lot. So that's one of those things that's like, yeah, you know, I mean, um, th- th- that's where the questions arise as to whether he's like, you know, likes football and, and wants to sacrifice and all that kind of stuff. Um, and also position wise, you know, where does he end up? Is he going to be a 300 pound guy? Would you look like, you know, he was one of those rare uh, sort of Ellis um, McCarthy, you know, six, five, you know, 315 type defensive tackles that you just don't see very often on the West coast. Uh, but then, you know, he's dropped quite a bit of weight or at least he did last season and he looked uh, a lot slender. He, he looked good, you know, and, and when we saw him, he, he was actually, you know, doing some things and made some plays and, and, uh, and looked, you know, like, okay, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's playing well. I would say that he had a better year. He had better junior film than uh, T.A. Cunningham. Uh, but uh, at the same time, you know, obviously playing on a team where, He's got some dudes around him as well. You know, you got this here Wyatt there. You, you've got some, some, some good players around you. So, you know, he was one of several guys on that modern-day defense. Uh, that's a good player. Was T.A. Cunningham was kind of like the only guy on defense. Uh, and, um, you know, he got double-teamed, and he just wasn't able to be that dominant factor uh, that we thought he was going to be. The next question comes from Rich and S.D. Hermanos. I heard Elijah Brown say that he'd be willing to sit and learn the position if he needed to at USC. Can you confirm if true? Wouldn't Lincoln Riley want a guy like that in the QB room? Also, Chris, what's this about this fantasy baseball league? How do I get an invite? To start with the first question about Elijah Brown, I believe Elijah told that to JP Five Stars only at the Elite 11 Regional that he'd be willing to obviously sit and learn. I believe the question was centered around, you know, them already having Malachi Nelson or having got signed him in the 2022 class, Elijah Brown willing to sit and take a year to learn and, you know, go through that process. So, yeah, I mean, you would want a guy like that, a, a high-level guy like Elijah Brown who is willing to do that. But also, uh, Lincoln Riley also made it a point to say they want to go after guys who want to compete. I'm not saying Elijah Brown doesn't want to compete, but I'm just saying, you know, they're going after the number one overall player in the country. So they're not really concerned about finding a guy who's willing to just sit and learn again not saying Elijah Brown doesn't want to compete I'm just saying look around he's going after the guy he wants and if that's a guy who's going to push Malachi maybe even beat him out and as a number one overall, number one overall player that's the guy he wants yeah it's a double-edged sword because I mean certainly I think to the question having a the patience and in a era where you've got transfer portal and you've got these kids that are jumping in the portal because, you know, they, they didn't get enough snaps in practice. It's uh, difficult, you know, to, to, to shuffle that, that room all the time in your roster. And if you've got guys that are willing to, to, to wait and develop within the system, that's a culture builder. And I think that's something that USC is still in the process of. I think they're still in the process of trying to build a winning culture. I think you saw at various points last year where the culture kind of gave way a little bit, and people feel like, well, no, they won 11 games, man. We talked about it. They turned it around. It's done. They're, they're winners. And it's like, nope, they're not, and they're not back, and all that talk is uh, very premature. You know, It's going to take years to kind of build the culture from where it was 
And a guy like Elijah Brown, I think, you know, you bring somebody in like that um, that is willing to embrace the culture and go through the process and become a better player. There's definitely upside in that. Uh, now, you know, Coach Riley saying we want guys that can compete. Well, everybody who comes in is, is going to compete. Um, but there's guys that are going to compete right now. And then when they lose that competition, they're gone. And it's like, okay, we're back to ground zero now. And we got to go fill that position with another guy that can compete until, you know, that competition is won or lost. And then you do somebody again, whereas opposed to, you know, bringing somebody in who's going to compete, but not give up and not quit and not decide I need to go elsewhere because I feel like this is not fair for whatever reason. And so that, unfortunately, from a culture standpoint, just within kids today, um, it's something that you see a lot of. So, you know, guys want to come in, they want to play right away, and, and they, they have these ideas, you know, and um, you see players come in right away, even at the quarterback position nowadays, and they're able to make an impact immediately. And it sort of sets a precedent, you know, for all the kids behind them, like, oh, yeah, sure, I, I should do that, you know, right? I'm too talk about a low of good. I can just come in right away, win a national championship, just put me in, coach, boom. And, and they feel like they don't get that opportunity and they're getting slighted and they go elsewhere. So, um, you know, I, I think it really just comes down to uh, the evaluation of, of what you want um, in terms of arm strength and in terms of the ball that's thrown, et cetera. Obviously, USC is in love with Dylan Royola. I mean, they this is their second time around and potentially could lose them again. You know, Nebraska putting their best foot forward. Um, Steve Wilfong has sort of wavered and gone back to Georgia and now feels Georgia is, is the school to beat. You know, Blair Angulo kind of feels like he likes what USC has and the position that they're in, but thinks that, you know, Georgia is right there as well. So I've said it before, you know, when it comes to Dylan Raiola, like USC is showing everything they can show. They can't do much more, you know, unless it's just, hey, you know, I'm going to go on my official visits and I want to spend these 48 hours with the coaches and with um, the recruiting class and just get a vibe, you know, just get a vibe as a whole for, for those people. Uh, and, and that's going to be the difference, like my comfort level with those people. Um, then that's, you know, something that we're just going to have to wait and see how that goes. You know, Georgia's got their visit already locked in. I, I think that's uh, the first week. Uh, we'll see if he makes it, you know, beyond that visit. And if that's what he's looking for, because if, if, if there's nothing more in terms of like development, and winning an offensive system, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, USC's put it all out there. Like, there's there's nothing you can really uh, want more from that standpoint, uh, from a factor uh, aspect, if, if you're Dylan Rayola. Um, so, you know, we'll see uh, what, what it actually comes down to. Um, if he's going to be back on campus at USC, you know, that's a, a big deal. I think that was the thing. With Riola, you know, not getting to come back after the Ohio State visit, it was like, bada boom, bada bing, Ohio State, kind of like, you know, a lot of people feel like with the offensive tackle out of Missouri, Andrew Sprague, it's like, you know, they got that feeling on that visit. And you think, you know, this is it. And then things change. <laughs> I don't, I don't, and I, you know, to this day, I don't know exactly what changed with Dylan Riola and Ohio State, you know, how, how, the dynamic change with, with how he felt about Ohio State. But, um, you know, obviously it did change, and it changed quickly. And now, you know, you're, you're back there with USC. And he, he says, you know, he has, he has a better and better time and enjoys it more and more every time he goes to USC. So, you know, that in itself speaks to you got to get him back on campus. 
And if they're able to get him in this weekend or for the spring game, whatever it is, um, that's going to be vital in recruiting him. And that is going to dictate what they do with Elijah Brown because it's been the precedent. It's already been set. You know, coming out of the gates, all our eggs are in the basket of Dylan Rilla. Okay, he's at Ohio State. Okay, now we got to – we got to – what the plan B here? DJ Lagway, what are you up to? Okay, and then, you know, okay, now it's Elijah Brown, and Elijah Brown's been there, and, um, you know, certainly they are still involved in recruiting him. He just went up to campus uh, recently, and so, uh, you know, it, it. but it definitely still feels like, you know, the ball is in Dylan Briola's court, and, you know, he, he's going to be the one that's going to dictate sort of the future of USC quarterback recruiting. And the final question is for me, also, Chris, what's – this about a fantasy baseball league. How do I get an invite? Yes, so this is a niche group, not a niche group, but it is my roommate's fantasy baseball league that he has been running for, I don't know, like seven years, eight years, nine years, something like that. And it's very serious, high buy-in, and there's contracts, there's a budget, free agency budget you have every year. Sign players, three-year contracts, two-year contracts, a one-year contract. There's penalties for dropping players before their contract is up. There's a waiver wire, obviously. There's restricted free agency rights. It's very complex to an extent. And I inherited a team because one of the owners was not really participating. So he had me join. I don't really know a lot about baseball, but he really wanted me to be in the league. And so I took over as a co-owner with this guy. And then eventually he just fell out. Now I run it with my brother and one of my friends. So it's a three-person ownership we do. We won We won it all in 2019, my second year in the league. And then we've missed the playoffs the last couple of years. So trying to get back to the playoffs, it's a very competitive league. Very fun, very stressful. Uh, gives me a lot of headaches. But, you know, it is what it is. So how do you get an invite? Well, someone needs to drop from the league, and you have to have some connection. I guess, Rich and SD, I am part of your connection. So I will let you know if there's some uh, some openings. But for right now, we do not have an opening. And it's Big Lebowski themed. So all the team names are based off the Big Lebowski. Mine is, my catcher has health problems. So if you're a fan of the movie, you will understand that reference. Is there the a white f- Russian team? Uh, I have not seen a white Russian team, but my roommate loves white Russians. So, but no Russian, no white Russian team names, as far as I know. So does Big Lebowski? Uh, he like the dude loves white yeah. Russians. That's yeah, like, uh, that's my introduction to white Russians. It sounds gross to me, but you know who am I to judge uh, someone's have favorite? Have you ever drink? had a white Russian? I've never had a white Russian. Oh, white Russians are, are good. You know me; I'm not big on alcohol, but I will uh, partake in a. You'll throw down a white Russian. Good white Russian with some good Kahlua. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's kind of one of those sweet, eh, borderline girly drinks, maybe. I, I, I don't know. It's uh, it's very sweet drink. So that's the only reason I like it. I only like things that are basically like desserts, and maybe they have alcohol in them, too. Well, there you go. The fans have learned something new about Hurricane that he likes white Russian. So put that down in the notebook for people keeping Hurricane Facts. And our final question is kind of a fun one. It comes from Scott. He he sent me this question. I'd kind of boil it down to a simple question. USC has 15 scholarships for high school kids. Gerard, do you take 15 seniors from Bosco and Modern Day, or do you take 15 
from the field that is any other high school in the country. Well, you mean like a compilation of high schools across the country? Yeah, the field. So any other uh, high schools? I mean, yeah, you're always. You, I mean, you could pick anybody. You're gonna go with a field. <laughs> I mean, you, you could just basically get the whole five star class. You know, minus obviously Brandon uh, Baker and, and and a couple of the guys that are at Modern Day in Bosco that are at that level. I should uh, add well. that it's only California high schools. Oh, okay. 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 So I, I forgot that. I forgot that point. I forgot that point. I'm sorry. I screwed up the question. But we're that, back. That definitely makes it tougher, you know, because obviously you don't have quite as many high end prospects that you can just cherry pick, you know, from across the country. You're you're just talking about California. I mean, that's one of those things you have to like look at the whole class and and you know. Oh, man, I'd still lean towards the field just because there's so many high schools and so much variety and you probably are going to be able to fill your needs better. Um, But that's definitely more of an argument. And it would probably be modern day at this point more. Now, granted, modern days, the, the really heavy hitters look like they're more in like the 2025, 2026 class. I mean, that's really where you'd go. Oh man, you know that's that's debatable. Um, 2024 though, yeah, I take the field. Okay, he takes the field. I would probably also take the field, but I would think about it. I just think you know, playing the field, you have better odds of getting more, fulfilling some needs. You know, getting some other guys out there. And yeah, I know it's like modern days pipeline school, blue chips all around, but. It just feels like it'll work better if you take the field. But I, I am tempted to pick the two Trinity League powerhouses trading national championships and CIF Division One titles. But it's but, either or, right? It's like modern day or Bosco or the field. It's not. No, I, th- I think day. it's no, I think it's both. Oh, so modern day and Bosco together. Yeah, like modern day and like Bosco. So you can take ten from modern day or ten from. Five from modern day or ten from Bosco. Yeah, oh, it's the that is tougher. I mean, you're talking about what DeAndre Carter, Brandon Baker, Kingston, uh, Kingston, Villamo Asa, uh, Xavier Brown, Marcellus Williams, Peyton Woodyard, um, Jason Mitchell is now at Bosco. Um, King Large, if you want some offensive line help yeah that that i mean that's that's tougher i mean that's definitely now he's going back on it i think he's taking the the Uh, i think i'm still on (laughs) the field but yeah that's that's really tough even for the 2024 class just because you know modern day has some very good linemen um and they've got you know nate frazier there um you know again now when you look at that you you start to already look at the 2025 class and you're thinking of uh you know i want jordan davidson in there but that's just for 2024 uh but that's yeah i mean you're taking a big hunk out of the talent pool in california when because that's the other thing you got to look at you got to look at the field and now you don't have any of those guys that you, you could get otherwise you can't get brandon baker or deandre carter um you and know, you get elijah brown if you want yeah, if you take yeah, if you're going modern day and Bosco, yeah, for sure. But um, yeah, against it, yeah, you, you're you're kind of looking. You know, I tell you what, I tell you what, if you take the field, you take the Billy Williams. Mm, okay, he's still taking the field. Ever, even though I had to correct myself on this question three times, he's still taking the field. I, I respect it, Gerard. I respect you sticking with your gut and your guns on the initial. 
And that is the final question of this episode. And what I think is the longest episode in Composite Two Star Recruits history, Gerard. Even longer than the live show? No, not longer than the live show. Those don't count. Those are an entirely oh, different oh, animal. Oh, oh, oh. Those are an entirely different of animal. Of course. So this one is pushing four hours. So wow, someone, the easy guys, work. the, the easy. easy work, the guys who, uh, well, it's it's kind of cheating because we didn't actually go four hours. We had the hour interview with Shotgun, so that we didn't actually, you know, put in four hours of work. Well, I did, I guess, I guess, and I saw the editing. But for the most part, the guys who take those long drives from Bakersfield to LA or whatever, they they will enjoy this episode. This one's for them, for the real ones, for the drivers. The short crowd, the short crowd is not gonna like this one. I'll tell you that right now. The, the, the filthy casuals will be up in arms about how this should be edited to 30 minutes. Please, we don't need your explanations. We just need talking points. Just need talking points. Gerard, it's been a long episode. I think we've covered too much, if there is such a thing, for this episode. We'll come back. We'll talk about the holy hour and what happened over the weekend. And I'm sure much more things will pop up for us to talk about. But happy breaking down Deuce Robinson Day. I'm Chris. That is Gerard. We will catch you next time on Composite Two Star Recruits. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.